himself, Patrick, co-hosting this morning at 8 at 9 a.m. Um, so, I think I mentioned on the podcast a few months ago when I saw our beloved, my my beloved, not, I don't know if it's our beloved, my beloved crimes of the future. Um, <laughs> oh, you know what I'd be loving, too. Uh, you, 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 you're here for the jokes. Um, Viggo Mortensen was there. And we did some David Cronenberg trivia, hosted by Viggo Mortensen before the movie started. Mm-hmm. And Viggo was like, here's the prize. And he just had a bunch of Blu-ray copies of his directorial debut, Falling. Which, of course, Lance Henriksen is the star. Uh, oh who God. plays uh, Vigo's dad in it. He's apparently quite good. Unbeknownst to me that we'd be doing this entire Lance Henriksen thing, I was like, man, I wish I had raised my hand. I knew all the answers. I'm a Cronenbergian. Yeah. And I could have scored us a copy of Falling and we could have watched that. We could have watched one of the new classic sad dad movies. Yeah, yeah. I Yeah, I I have not seen it, but I I've actually have heard um Lance is like really good in it. And which doesn't surprise me necessarily, but it's like everyone said it's a really great like late career non-genre part for him. Ooh. It's yeah. It's not surprising that he would give a good performance, but it is like yeah. It'd be akin to like Jeffrey uh, Combs having like a who, you know who, playing Anthony Hopkins's son or something. Who who frankly could do it? Yes, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Combs is a treasure as well. He's a treasure and he's a good actor. People he's a really good that. actor. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, yeah. Like all like people who end up in like a ton of genre movies, they still like they get cast in a ton of genre movies for a reason. For the most part, they're really good, and it's just yeah. they get stuck kind of in that, you know, genre era. I always remember like Eli Roth gave this very funny interview after he did Cabin Fever. His agents were like, "You got to take on like, um, I don't know, like a blockbuster or a drama or a comedy or something like that to prove that you're not like the horror guy." And he goes, "But I want." to be the horror guy. Yeah, he likes the genre. <laughs> it's like, good for him. <laughs> he knows who he is. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I don't think Eli Roth wants to direct, like, an atonement. That's fine. No, we guess, don't need that. Um, on the Video Archives podcast this past week, Eli Roth even shared a story that he got offered a big movie right after Cabin Fever like that. And Quentin Tarantino sat him down and goes, is that what you really want to do? Dude, or he's like, I know you got this idea for Hostel, and I know that's the one that you're really thinking about. And he turned it down based on Tarantino's advice. I, see, that's nice because it's like, yeah, like you know, we have enough Stephen Daldrys. That's fine. Yeah. Like, Dude, then there's nothing. There's... We actually have. We actually probably could use a few more lunatics like Eli Roth making <laughs> movies. Yes, we need a few more <laughs> weird wild cards. Yeah, yeah, some true characters. Hello, and welcome to the award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy couple characters here the show that discovers mm. the absolute undeniable and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career i'm don saunderson and i'm patrick Remian. and welcome to 
our spooky episode one day late one day late one day late november 1st 2022 yeah. Ooh, i'm a goblin i'm a goblin <laughs> i think it goes to show you can watch scary movies anytime and i mean, admittedly we've already you know covering true romance and the character drexel a few weeks ago is arguably the scariest person we could have covered oh (laughs) much scarier than dracula for sure i would rather hang out with Uh, dracula than step aside frankenstein drexel's here oh dude on the subject of frankenstein i saw i want to hear about this you told me you were going tell us about it oh dude went to the la opera Saw Frankenstein with the uh, 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 accompanied by uh, uh, Michael Shapiro's orchestral score. So apparently, the original Frankenstein uh, did not come out with like a score. Like that movie was made was made in 1931, and if you watch the the OG movie, like like the real real original movie, uh, this was back when like you know films were still had like accompaniments mm-hmm. in like the theater or whatever, like some guy on the piano or whatever. And so in 2001, someone commissioned Michael Shapiro to make like an orchestral score to like uh, accompany Frankenstein. And holy shit, it's a banger. It's really, I'll tell you what, I want to see, it makes me want to like any movie we've done in the pod. I would love to see this guy make a new score score for yes please like author author let's get this guy let's get michael shapiro to do one for author 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 because like it adds like another level of like like it adds like a level of depth that i'm not sure although like honestly for like a 71 minute film frankenstein whips there's like i i i watched it over the course of this spooky season as well but not with a great orchestra (laughs) i just watched it on criterion channel (laughs) but um it's great it's true. It's a terrific movie, dude. Like, the it, part where like that that guy has his daughter, and they're just he's just walking through. He's doing yeah. like that frog march through the, the the town while everyone's dancing. That still hits the um that entire scene with the little girl. I think he's even said it. That's basically Guillermo del Toro's like impetus is seeing that moment. Like that's that scene is the kind of movies that I want to make. <laughs> yeah, that's that's like good cinema and that because it's just like this classic like oh no i screwed up <laughs> yeah i i gotta see, i've been going through the universal monsters movies uh most of them still play like gangbusters the Ooh. like they're real like bride of frankenstein still slaps um they're really like i saw uh, chapo trap house's will Meneker bring this up the other day too because i think he's going through them as well mm-hmm. the invisible man so and all the other universal movies, there's all about like regrets and not really wanting to be a monster. Mm-hmm. Claude Rains is the Invisible Man. He's like into it. He loves <laughs> he's, it. He's, he's derailing trains. <laughs> he's, kill, <laughs> he's riding bikes, <laughs> like <laughs> freaking out, killing everybody. He's having the time of his life. <laughs> this is like. Does that make the Invisible Man maybe the most entertaining out of all of them? Yeah, it does. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like, wouldn't the of the opera be like so much more fun if that dude was just stoked to have his weird mask and organ it is so interesting like out of all the monsters though like the invisible man even going to like movies like hollow man or um oh genuinely terrifying gross movie hollow man and um, oh yeah the new one the elizabeth moss invisible man um that's like the one monster that no one has tried to like give a lot of sympathy to and they're like no they do bad things the second they become invisible they're bad they're well, really really bad 
I think it's like because it's like because is the Invisible Man like the scientist who made like the Invisible Juice or Cream or whatever? He's like a megalomaniac. Yeah. Any, yeah. Anyway, and it just brings out the um, the invisibility. Invisibility brings out the uh, true nastiness of character. Oh God, yeah. Because it's like, yeah, you know, I feel like that's a. It's very tempting if you're invisible. You want to goof around. You want to yeah, like. Yeah, something. and it's such an interesting moral question with all these movies. Is like, you know, and I think it goes to like the filmmakers. I mean, like maybe their character of like, what would you do? I don't know, like rob places and touch boobs. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like essentially what all of them do. <laughs> yeah, it's just like they're just like a, the star of Hot Dog the movie at the end of the day. Yeah, they would just like, yeah, yeah. It's like it's a license to be a sicko, which I've been wanting. Like Hollywood sickos, of course. That's all they've been yeah. after. <laughs> Only it's Hollywood sickos. Uh, here's a transition for you. Speaking of someone who's not a Hollywood sicko, we're talking Lance Henriksen today. On yes. The show. In the grand tradition, two years in now on the Academy Academy for our Halloween episode, we grab a genre icon and we're going to break down a few of our favorites of their movies. And of course, Lance Henriksen today, who is, you know, already an Academy Academy legend. Oh, you man, know, total I, king. I was just looking at what what he's been, you know, I mean, obviously, most people would point to Piranha 2, The Spawning. Mm, <laughs> yes. But also <laughs> Terminator, Aliens, Terminator 2. And... The part that keeps popping in my head, he kills Sal in Academy Academy Champion Dog Day Afternoon. Yes. In one of his earliest roles in 1975's Dog Day Afternoon. Um, A terrific actor. I mean, goes without saying. Oh, yeah. He's got such great um, gravitas. His life is so colorful, too. That's, I think, the reason why he, like, feels authentic in everything he does and you know yes. get into kind of a little bit of biographical background for lance Ooh, here in a yeah. moment because he's um yeah i think that we've talked a bit little bit about that with over the course of the academy academy is like because actors just like go from like the disney channel to marvel movies now mm-hmm. that there's no like where are the ex-merchant marines Yes, <laughs> who are now after? We're like, yeah, I've stumbled into it. Where are the where 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 is Al Pacino's stickball teammates? Exactly, we were lose the stickball demographic has dwindled. We need yeah. some stickballers. Well, like the idea of like these like g- guys and gals from the wrong side, um, kind of from um, <sighs> differing backgrounds, differing worlds who actually had jobs beforehand who like stumble in acting and just find that it's like, man, I'm into this. It's like my true passion. And I got like a thing for it. Yeah. I don't there's something know. so much more sincere and genuine about that than just like, Oh, my parents had me audition for something when I was 12 and I've just been doing this since, or even better. My dad is, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like my, yeah, my dad is uh, Andy Fickman. And so <laughs> it's just so crazy how it is. I was watching the new Hellraiser movie and mm-hmm. I looked up, um, you know, I'd never seen a late actress before. And I was like, oh, what's her deal? She's, she's interesting. Um, her mom is Pamela Adlon from Better Things. Oh my God. It's like, 
everyone it's everyone's kid everyone is the kid of someone now well, like you look at like smile the lead of that is kevin, kevin bacon's Bacon. daughter <laughs> although i gotta hand it to our man kevin bacon a true king and prince simultaneously oh. uh he goes we got a well-standing well-standing horror tradition in our family and i was like nice kevin yes <laughs> mr tremors friday 13th tremors although I, I'm going to say it now because I don't want to forget it. I think that Pumpkinhead could use a little bit more tremors. Yeah. Dude, we'll get to it in a good... moment, but I wanted to plant that plant that idea. I like that. I like, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, I, thought I, we were get, I thought we were getting that in like their Ozark community being attacked by a pumpkin head. And I was going to be all these like rednecks doing battle with the pumpkin head. Yes. That's what I was hoping we were getting out of pumpkin head. That was kind of my like dream scenario. <laughs> Did not go totally in that direction we'll get to it in a little bit here but let's get let's let's talk about the background on lance henriksen born may 5th 1940 making him 82 years young this year um same age as our beloved al pacino 1940 birth and our equally beloved brian de palma so a lot of (laughs) a lot of uh wonderful folks born in 1940 um born in manhattan new york man this sentence right here makes me like curious about Lance Henriksen, even if I knew nothing else. His father, James Henriksen, was a Norwegian merchant sailor and a boxer named Icewater who spent most of his life at sea. That's like such cool. a different. That's like something you would you would hear that in a fucking uh, the Herman Melville novel. That's like yeah. insane. <laughs> it, it, and it goes to show like that was just a few generations ago that existed. And I don't know even how much of that, like, I'm sure there are fringes of that sort of thing these days, <laughs> but it it is like, it does, it, like, you almost feel like reading that sentence, yes, you've, like, gone in a time machine. For <laughs> sure. Like, yeah, you're going back to a time when, like, there were, like, stereotypes about Swedish people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like and the Swedish cop was a big well, like, also stereotype. like Lance Henriksen could be born and live in Manhattan with a merchant sailor and a struggling mother. Oh Still yeah, live in Manhattan. God damn, yeah, that would hurt. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, that, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> and so uh, his mother was, um, her name was Marguerite Werner Warner mm. Werner. I don't know, and she struggled to find work as a dance instructor waitress model. Uh, his parents divorced when he was two. His mother struggled to raise him and his brother, so he got sent to foster care. And um, he said dur- during an interview, Henriksen recounted how at age seven, his mother handed him his birth certificate and said, you always know who you are, and then pushed him out of his home. Fucking IRL latchkey kid. That's fucking yes. crazy. It's like the dead end kids, man. Like, yeah. I, like you know, he did like, boxcar children shit at some point. He yeah. was solving mysteries on He's a train. Like, among the last of his kind, though, who like, like you hear those stories about like Robert Mitchum riding the rails and being in chain gangs and stuff like that. Just a generation before this, like the and like it's 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 really cool that he's that he, not only he came from where he came and found the success he's found and that kind of stuff, but like. The man has lived a full life in his 82 yeah. years. He's textured. Um, he left home. He finally left home around the age of 12. And um, he, there's even a story that apparently two of his uncles tried to persuade him to take methadrine and take part in a staged car accident for the insurance money. Oh, that's insane. 
<laughs> truly insane um he you know bounced in and out of schools got in trouble spent time at a children's home he ended up dropping out of school after the first grade and he was oh, illiterate no. until the age of 30 that that's so it's cool that he went from being like like learning how to read at age 30 to acting and starting yeah. in movies yeah and like being an artist and living this full wonderful life and having you know and that kind of it's 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 very he's he's amazing uh he ended up joining the navy and he served from 1955 to 1958 and attained the rank of petty officer third class not a military guy so i don't really know if that's good or bad yeah that's <laughs> um, probably okay <laughs> uh and then so upon you know getting out of the Navy, he worked as a muralist and a laborer on ships, bounced around Europe, um, and ended up uh, where his first theater work around the age of 30 as a set designer. Um, and around that exact same time, he was cast in his first role, and he basically had to learn how to read in order to do the role. And that's, that's when he taught himself how to lay. He put the entire script to tape, learning everyone's part, and then he ended up like falling in love with it. And he, like a lot of people of his generation, is a member of the Actors Studio and began acting in New York. Oh. After that, and it's just amazing. And you can see it though. It's like, and that's what's kind of missing, I think, from a lot of these young. I mean, they're they're talented, they're pretty. These younger performers, mm. though, like. He brings this like you know, like when he shows up in Dog Day Afternoon and tells Sal it's gonna be okay and take his hand off the gun, you believe everything. Like he looks like this FBI guy. Yeah, but he's hardened. He's yeah. a hardened man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's like the guy was like leathery at thirty five. Yeah, you yeah you believe that this dude did insidious things for like the Dole Fruit Company, like yeah. <laughs> or United Fruit Company in like Central yeah. America or something. Like, and it's just like I think that. And people have said this before, and I think like if you witness the successes, even though obviously they're incredibly handsome men, so it's, that helps their cause quite a bit. But the latent career su true successes of people like George Clooney and John Hamm, there's an added gravity to their work because there were 15 years of pure struggle and <laughs> trying to, yeah. like, you know, John Hamm before he got Mad Men was fairly convinced he was going to be a career career uh, waiter. Oh yeah. You know, and then he gets that, and he's fine. You yeah, know, well, but, he, uh, but he's not going to forget the struggle. Like no, he's going to be in—he's going to be in like five things a year, the rest of his career, because he can't stop working because he's so afraid of of the opposite. Yeah, desperation is his spice. Like, yeah, it that's is. Like, like, I mean, that's acting. Like traditional actors, it's like their entire thing has always been like, I need the next part. I need to keep work. like like yeah. maintaining work is the is the goal because otherwise I'm starving and I have starved before and I do not want to starve again. But this is the only thing I can do. Can do. <laughs> Most actors, this is like the only thing that they can do too. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, that is rough. That is rough. And um, so but once he got into the game, you know, in 1970s with like look. And edge that Henriksen has, um, gaining supporting roles and character work in the world of 1970s New Hollywood was not, you know, 
once he started working, he started working. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I mean, like, I mean, a ton of absolutely terrific pictures. Um, you know, starting, I would say, you know, with um, he's in a film called Emperor of the North from 1973. Um, Robert Aldridge, Lee Marvin, Ernest Borgnine, Ooh. tough guy movie. Uh, 75, Dog Day Afternoon. Uh, 76, he's in Network in an uncredited Ooh. role, but uh, Sidney Lumet clearly liked him. Uh, he's in 77, he's in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Oh, nice. Uh, 78, Damien, The Omen Part 2. 79, the needs to be seen to be believed, the visitor, science fiction horror movie, uh, written and produced by our old friend Oviodo G. Asinatis. Yes, <laughs> one of those uh, guys. Yeah, he's up there with Don Simpson and uh, uh, yeah, and, a, uh, a true, Joel. yeah, true. Like walking the line, made some stuff, but probably a real creep. Uh, yeah, kind of real, yeah, real probably, probably individual. to certainly to allegedly. Um, 1981, Lance Hendrickson is in Piranha 2 The Spawning, meets Ooh. James Cameron. Should note that, too. Key key, uh, key uh, moment there. Uh, 1981, he returns to the world of Sidney Lumet in Prince of the City. Underseen film. What a Under, good movie. Underseen, terrific movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> our, our good friend Jesse, though, <laughs> says he's got a problem with it because he has a General Treat Williams problem. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was, I was very funny. Like that's he's the, sticks out as a guy. Yeah, I'm into this guy. <laughs> I like yeah. I like how he's phrased that because it's like I did treat Williams like wrong Jesse in the past. Yeah, did they meet knows. up? Yeah, he's like I don't buy him. Don't buy him. Don't like. Yeah. I'm like yeah. Prince of the City's pretty good, man. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Treat Williams is having a ball. Yeah, although like yeah, he's, I, yeah. He's you know he's. I think there's a reason he didn't like get all the way over the top, mm-hmm. but I think he's really good. I think he's the right guy. For Princess City, because I think if it was like Al or De Niro or somebody like that, they'd bring a little too much of their own baggage. I think you need like a callow kind of guy. Yeah, you need that someone role. who can just be a lunatic, like yeah, <laughs> with a lunatic without any of the introspection. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's kind of like a weird innocent too, who doesn't really yeah. totally understand what they're doing. Um, nineteen eighty three, Lance is in the Right Stuff, mm. a terrific movie uh, for any. Uh, anyone who has not seen that one, well worth it. Um, eighty-four. How about the Terminator? We've took, we've covered it. Go back to the episode; it's great. <laughs> I'll be back. I'll be back. Maybe uh, eighty-five. Jagged Edge with um, Jeff Bridges and um, Glenn Close. Mm-hmm. Eighty-six. Aliens. Yeah. The character the cl- Bish- The character Bishop. Ooh. Android. Maybe talk about him again in a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. He, yeah. He has a big part in Pumpkinhead Bishop. He... <laughs> yeah. He's huge in Pumpkinhead. Um, and then um, in 1987, he appears in the film Near Dark, our first movie we're going to be discussing today. Um, also, I should note, uh, give a shout out to friends of the podcast, friends of the show, Kyle Clark, Amy Drillette, and my wife, Jen. Uh, on their show, they have also covered Near Dark. So if you want more Near Dark uh, material, check out their old episode on Everything is Scary. Because this is a pretty beloved movie within our, our world of friends. Um, I've seen it a whole bunch of times. I believe you were new to it. It was. I was 100% new to it. And I got to say... Even though I was expecting something that was like a little like, you know, 
off-kilter tour. I was expecting more Lost Boys than this, and man, I'm mm-hmm. so happy it wasn't. Like, as great <laughs> as Lost Boys is, this movie's its own fucking thing, and it's fun as hell. Like, it's very, like, yeah. It isn't the, like, 80s goofy fun that Lost Boys is. I say that I'm a Lost Boys fan. I oh, like yeah, Lost same here. Boys, you know, um, it's a lot, I think it, like, one of the things I really love about Near Dark is that despite being, like, a 1987 movie, there is like a timeless quality to it. Like it doesn't like dabble a ton in like of the moment stuff. It's like it and Catherine Bigelow's style is not. Um, it's so it's like it's very like um, elegant, which is an interesting thing to say for this. But she chooses the right shots. She doesn't over push it. When she does tricks, it's like very like very like nice slow-mo or like you know it's all like well done and never like doesn't fall into like a catch-all of hot moves of the time period yes if and everything feels like every choice feels earned uh with the exception of maybe one or two choices towards the end but for the most part like everything kind of like fits pretty well and it's incredible how there are these like long like this movie is short. It's like only like an it's hour and ultra, thirty minutes. It's an ultra lean movie. But but yeah, but everything like it doesn't. There's no fat on this film movie. No. It's all it's all thriller, no uh, no all killer, no filler. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah, it's. I couldn't believe it just while I was watching. It's just like you know having seen it so many times and knowing all of the beats of the movie. It's like man, I like every scene. The only thing I ever ever questioned is like. They do miraculously cure vampirism. Yeah, that's with the one relative thing. speed and ease. And they're, just, um, they're just like, wait, you have to just <laughs> blood transfusion. Like, yeah, but it's like the blood you were drinking. Like but that. I think that you know now that it tr- it makes an attempt to de-romanticize and de-heighten being a vampire, like as mm-hmm. like the rest of the movie does. Should be said just straight up, they never actually use the word vampire in this movie. Um, Which is also, a cool move. Before we get into it, uh, currently streaming on Shutter, oh. uh, or no, no, not on Shutter, on Criterion Channel, right? And Criterion oh. Channel is where I I watched it. Um, I believe it's been on Shutter. Where did you watch it, Patrick? See, I watched it on. I went on Amazon, and uh, I guess like if you do like the free ten day or six day trial for Movieplex is what it was called. Oh, weird. You can you can watch. So I just did a free trial on that, and I need. Glad you reminded me because I gotta gotta make sure that free child yeah, stays so free. Yeah, um, <laughs> and it, it it's a weird one because it's had it has I think part of the reason why it's pretty like cultish and legendary is it has had a very difficult and unique release history. Um, mm. Basically, it bombed at the box office, um, kind of disappeared. There was a. Um, uh, Anchor Bay put out a really nice DVD edition mm-hmm. of it in the early 2000s um, that I I have back here on my shelf. Ooh. And um, but then it's never seen Blu-ray, and the uh-huh. Anchor and the DVD has actually been like out of print for a bit. And so until it starts like popping up on these streaming services, it was kind of hard to find, kind of hard to see for for a bit of time there. Um, which I think helps kind of its um, reputation mm-hmm. as being as lost gem. Um, 
or like talk about hush terms among the real true horror movie fans um i would love to see i think it's right for it i think it's i think they would do it maybe it's a really rights kind of issue i think it's screaming for an actual criterion collection uh disc release i think it's Mm-hmm. that good i think it i think that there's a lot of reasons why it would fit the bill for that uh so now that we've told you where to watch it pause the show watch it because we're going to talk all about it Oh. <laughs> yeah, we're we're going to be spoiling, so um film directed by Catherine Bigelow written by Eric Red and Catherine Bigelow um me uh just cinematography by Adam Greenberg I think we brought up earlier even that he did the cinematography of Terminator 1 and Terminator 2 there is a massive crossover between the world of James Cameron and this movie <laughs> uh much would have to do with the fact that Catherine Bigelow was of course married to James Cameron and hanging out with him in this time period uh check out the martini ranch music video as well if you have not seen that with a lot of these people in that video uh as well. I mean, we might have to just post that on the YouTube, we'll, we'll on put the on Twitter we'll put channel. on the we'll, we'll link the YouTube to the um Twitter uh that's a lot of tech talk <laughs> um but uh, absolutely stacked cast and it goes beyond just the main players uh so our lead our lead actor in this is Adrian Pastar who plays Caleb Colton Adrian Pastar longtime listeners will remember of course from Streets of Gold Ooh, yeah. He's the other, he's he's the non-Wesley Snipes Not boxer. Wesley Snipes and not Klaus, the other guy who's Yeah. in Streets of Gold. <laughs> Some would call him <laughs> a third wheel in that movie. Some would call him the guy we talked about the least in our Streets of Gold episode. <laughs> uh, he's he's our he's our hunky cowboy lead. He's a hunky Mm-hmm. cowboy man. Um Jenny Wright plays May. Jenny Wright, um Patrick and I just saw at the New Beverly at the in a film called I Madman. Um, I did like after it was over, Phil Blankenship, the host of the All Nighter at the New Beverly, goes, How many of y'all have now have a crush on Jenny Wright? And I my id came out, man. I just threw my hand up. I was like, Yes. And Jen gave me the dirtiest look. Oh no! Down <laughs> in the doghouse. I was briefly in a doghouse, but Briefly, uh briefly in the doghouse she's with, um with Whistler. she's like really um unique and i think that's what makes her stick out Yeah, if you're she. if you're on her like you get to her like wavelength and you pick up on it like she's very irresistible i think in her She's own way like, yeah. She there's like a specificity specificity to her. Uh, appearance that's really cool like she yeah she she's like she's very beautiful and stuff but she's not like uh i feel it's like a she's kind of it's, it's a very singular look though yeah you know timeless she yeah was, was a good idea to cast her as a vampire Yes. And um, then we move on to Lance Henriksen plays Jesse Hooker. <laughs> just He is the, um, we'll call it the patriarch of the group, but not necessarily the oldest member of the group, which is kind of an interesting thing. And uh, he gets the wonderful line, um, hey, how old are you, Jesse? Well, let's just say I fought for the South and we lost. <laughs> <laughs> it's like He oh good for them. is tough. He's got he's got a great look. It's all happening for him. Um, along with him, Jeanette Goldstein plays Diamondback. His um, I think that they're they seem to be 
lovers together. I think so. Yeah, I thought uh, to say they're lovers. They, 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 but it the way it, the, the it's played as a family dynamic. So she's mom. Like we'll yeah. just put it out of the group. Um, and she's awesome playing a little again. They 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 wanted to do um, soften her up was the thought they want her to be more of a ma- of motherly in this film mm. compared to obviously in um aliens she's as tough as nails she's, right 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 you know she's introduced doing pull-ups i believe yeah <laughs> she's, she's like a cold-blooded killer in that film yes <laughs> uh playing the near-do-well uncle or older brother you you decide. Yeah, it is like yeah, great. Yeah, he has definitely has big brother energy, but also uncle and that's a scary combination. It's both big good. brother and uncle energy. Well, it's dangerous, and we we learn he is a dangerous man. Our 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 Lord and Savior Bill Paxton plays Severin in this movie. And you know we'll get into it a little bit further later, but in perhaps his greatest performance, yeah. or at least in top five. It's it's definitely it's like a tie between this one and his true lies performance. It's pretty it's pretty incredible. He's phenomenal. Um, Joshua John Miller plays Homer, who is the young little boy in the group, but we learn that he's actually probably the oldest in actual years, but he's oh, stuck man. in time. Another one like vampires will always work. There's always ways to make them work, and one of them. That always works. Always tragic. You can. It's easily identifiable. Like to put your head in that mindset is the child who's turned into the vampire who can never not be a child. Ooh, yeah. Works in uh, Interview with a Vampire with uh, Kirsten Dunst. Yep. Works in this movie. It works it's, in this movie. It's yeah. Very tragic. Also, it, I. It always uh, works. Yeah, the guy who plays Homer, he wrote the Final Girls. Yeah, yeah. He is a working um, screenwriter and director now. They yeah, actually did a him. tribute night to him at the New Beverly a few months ago. Woo! <laughs> he's a regular there. Oh, that! Um, oh man, we gotta look out for this guy. We should note uh, Tim Thomerson plays Caleb's dad, um, probably best known as Jack Death from the Transfers movies. <laughs> Jack Death is Tim Thomerson, or is um, sorry, is Lloyd Colton? Yes, Troy Evans, who I always like every time he shows up in things, plays a cop in this movie. You would know him from, uh, listeners would know him from movies like Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers, Men at Work, Twin Peaks, Cuffs. Cuffs appears again on the show. <laughs> Cuffs um, is back, folks. Baltimore Man, Under Siege. He's in Demolition Man. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, he's like one of the, another another cop role that he portrays. Yeah. He, um, he's in Ace Ventura. He's in Frighteners, Fear and Loathing. He's on, he just did a long run on Bosch. Ooh, like, our uh, boys on Bosch. Another Bosch boy. Um, yeah, he's great. Um, James LaGrosse is in it. He's a, he's a really terrific, um, you know, indie character actor. You know him from Phantasm 2, Drugstore Cowboy, Point Break. Um, he plays the poor kid at the Chewbox. Oh, the, uh, that's him? Yeah, that's him. Wow. Oh, man. That's a great, great little small role. That's uh, sad. Role. And then uh, Teresa Randall is in the movie. Um, from um, from our many Wesley Snipes, many of Wesley Snipes movies. Yeah, from, I think, Sugar Hill. Yeah, Sugar Hill and... Um, oh, Jungle Fever. Jungle Fever, the Bad Boys films as well. Oh, yeah. She's also uh, the um, titular girl in Girl 6. 
Uh, King of New York, of course. King uh, of New York. Oh yeah, she's one of the. Ah oh, man, a classic. I believe, I believe we may have put. I may have put her in the Academy Academy Hall of Fame. Deservedly so. You didn't write it down. Don't remember it, but yeah, you're in. Regardless. Yes. <laughs> you're in. Else? Yes. Mrs. Jordan. She's one of the ladies in the truck that Bill Paxton seduces. Oh man, yeah, that's a bummer. Yep, um, yep, yep. New Dark features three actors from Alien in mm-hmm. lead roles: Paxton, Henriksen, and Goldstein. Paxton and Henriksen were also in Terminator. Goldstein was also in Terminator Two. However, one of the bikers in the uh, Roadhouse sequence in Near Dark is also the guy Arnold excels. I want to close your boots on your motorcycle in um, Terminator 2. Oh, you mean the... Oh, my God. That is wild. <laughs> yeah, there's a ton of crossover between this. This is Catherine Bigelow's second film as a director. Mm-hmm. Um, first being The Loveless starring our beloved Willem Dafoe. Oh. Another crossover picture. So, vampires. Super hot in the late 80s uh mm. fright night and the lost boys uh massive successes lost boys was only released two months before near dark wow um catherine bigelow wanted to make a western that was her goal mm-hmm. um they found her co-writer erica had found financial backing for western difficult to obtain and it was suggested to them that they should mix western with another genre so they decided to insert in their Western vampire movie was basically how this went down. Mm-hmm. Um, they, um, they said that um, the um, oh, it should be noted too that Bigelow already knew James Cameron. And she got the three actors from Aliens that they also offered Michael Bean the role of Jesse Hooker. Wow. Instead of Lance. He rejected it because he found the script confusing, so Lance took it over. That's uh, really funny. I love that. Yeah. Oh my god. It's like, eh, I don't understand. I'm good. Pass. And James, James Cameron does do a small cameo in the film, too. Really? Uh, there's a there's a movie there's a theater that in the back early in the film is Aliens is playing on the marquee. Oh. And someone gives Severin the finger deep in the distance. It's James Cameron. <laughs> I love it. Of course, if he's cameoing, he can't just be like you know Alfred Hitchcock. He has to give the finger. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, and he clearly had you know read the script, gave some notes. Mm-hmm. And the man understands how to streamline shit, even though his movies are long. Like he, he gets what's needed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure he was there for them on that. Um, music by Tangerine Dream should be noted too. A great, mm-hmm. a great Tangerine Dream score. Um, gonna get in the plot here. We should talk about it real quick because they come up again later. Catherine Bigelow's co-writer Eric Red. Hello, this is uh, Patrick Grumion. Just a, a heads up, uh, a warning. Uh, we are going to be discussing some uh, uh, pretty dark content, including some IRL suicide stuff in a second. So uh, if you do not want to listen to that, 
uh, just uh, fast forward a minute or so. Uh, there you go. Spent the 80s, he wrote The Hitcher, Near Dark, Cohen and Tate, Blue Steel for Catherine Bigelow again. He wrote and directed Body Parts. The oh, wow. And was kind of, uh, and now is, works mostly as a novelist now. Um, had a real, real scary incident where he, in the in the year 2000, blacked out while driving and um, drove his car into a bar in L.A. and killed oh two people. God. And apparently bounced out of his car and attempted suicide by slitting his own throat with a piece of broken glass. I'm sorry, I should trigger warning that <laughs> yeah oh well i'll put a trigger warning before yeah. something no worries and, and yeah like and i and because i was wondering because you know watching a lot of horror movies in the spooky season i've been like man this guy really like had it going on they were like a part of stuff and they're really writing good cool unique material and it seems like um this incident in the year 2000 really obviously yeah took a look he survived and um, there was a lawsuit um, and still going on. And I mean, well, there's been appeals and all that kind of stuff. But it, I, I imagine it effectively ended his career in Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. There's a um, reason why he's only writing books now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sad. Very sad story, but excellent writer, you know, mm-hmm. and too bad. You know, who knows what went down with all that. Yeah. But back to something. Scary, Less but in, scary, but in a very fun way. The film yeah. Near Dark. <laughs> um, yeah, a movie that is a del- yeah. delightfully scary. A delightfully scary movie. Um, story begins with Caleb Cotton, a young shit kicker oh, in a yeah. small town out having beers with the boys. Yep. Uh, meets an attractive young drifter named May. Thinks he's super cute. Um, and just before sunrise, they're making out, and she bites his neck and runs off. Um... He finds that confusing, but he's very attracted to her. Um, Then the sun starts to rise, and he (laughs) starts to catch on fire. He's like, why am I smoking? Yeah, and I love the um, love the fire effects in this in this book. Like anytime they're on fire, it looks freaking terrific. Oh, it rules! Great effects in this movie. Um, And just before he can burn up. An RV with the windows blacked out arrives and grabs Caleb, throws a blanket over him, and pulls him in. What he discovers is that it is a group of roaming vampires that May is a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, and featuring the aforementioned Jesse, Diamondback, Severin, and Homer. Um, yeah, it's kind of like it, it's kind of like what would happen if like the Lost Boys from Peter Pan grew up and became total psychopaths basically. Yeah, and one of the one of the interesting things I was thinking about watching the movie was cuz the entire movie is basically about like Caleb does not want to kill. He's reluctant. He never does. Mm-hmm. No. Um everyone else outside of May in this crew and maybe May too. Jesse does not know her, or Caleb does not know her that well. <laughs> are total <laughs> lunatics. Oh, yeah, they're just totally fine with, like, in, yeah, and may even justify, she's like, yeah, like, you know, it's the only, it's either you or that you have to survive, yeah. like, they have, like, a sit-down. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it, it, Bigelow allows all of their, in kind of, like, classic movie tradition, the two young lovers are kind of the most boring people. 
in the movie. Mm-hmm. The the real color and excitement comes from the crew, the oh, four yeah. members of the crew. And so they take Caleb in. They demand that he kills. He doesn't want to. So they're going to test him one night, and they enter this bar, which leads to one of the most horrifying and thrilling sequences in all of 80s horror, if you ask me. It's so well filmed, and like, and it's the fact that like it goes on for as long as it does, and it's still like by the end of it, you want more. Like, I could have listened yeah. to another song in that jukebox. And basically, is just this scene where they just play with their prey, and nonstop, and all of like, led by Bill Paxton's like tour de force performances, Severin, <sighs> who yes. is just dancing around the bar, getting like. Slitting throats with his boots, um, he bas- crushes that guy's skull. I mean, it's just—it's so violent. It's so like over the yeah. top, and he's so abrasive. Like he yeah. has like you. There's a split second where like he insults um, he insults like the guy sitting next to him. And he's like, ah, your drinks here are shit. Blah blah blah. He's yeah. insulting the Baltic bartender. But then the bartender gives him a beer. And he goes, he puts his, like, chin in the beer and goes, look at me, I'm Buffalo Bill. And he has, like, a little, like, beer foam beard. Mm. And for, like, the, 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 the splittest of seconds, you're like, oh, maybe this will be okay. You know, he's just goofing around. He's a weird man. But, like, no, 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 no. It immediately escalates and becomes. It's, it plays out like, um, I think we were talking about it with the True Romance episode, actually, like a Tarantino scene. Almost. Yes. Where is, and I'm sure he loves this movie. I don't think I've ever heard him talk about it, but I would guarantee he loves this movie. And um, it, but it is that kind of like single scene hothouse tension, like what is going to happen? Everything is out there. Everything is possible. Yeah. It's well, it's like yeah, phenomenal. It's also like yeah, everyone. It's one of those things too, where like it's believable, like because like the whole time people are just. It takes a long time for people to act in this film, mm-hmm. and you get the sense that people are just kind of like half horrified half in awe of what they're witnessing it is such a like uh destruction of norms occurring in front of them like i don't know how i would react in that situation i think it's also the fun play on they're all tough guys who they're accosting who slowly turn from tough guys to deathly scared yes please stop yes please yeah yeah essentially please stop (laughs) yeah Oh man, yeah, and like, yeah, and it gets to the point where, like, yeah, well, even like the bartender like pulls out a gun, and then he realizes that doesn't work, and it's like, oh god. Yeah, and it is it feels like what you would what would happen if you were faced with real vampires? Like it was like, oh no, yeah. oh gosh, oh no. Yeah, you just, you just hope you end up like James LaGrosse, and you're able to just <laughs> jump, jump out a window. A... Insane. Listen, learn if if you're ever in a confrontation with vampires, jump jump out the window. Yeah, just let let you know. There's a fight or flight instinct. Let flight take over. Flight Flight the fuck out of there. Yeah, get get the hell out of there. And it's such a (laughs) showcase, though, for the for the entire cast. But I mean, in particular, obviously, Bill Paxton like owns the entire sequence, just strutting Mm -hmm. around the room like he owns everything, you know, in sight. But Hendrickson, that stuff he does with the waitress. It's utterly terrifying. Oh, God, yeah. You know, and it's just, they're all so scary. To even the little kid, Homer, waving around the gun. Like, (laughs) laying on the table. Like, he's laying on the table. Like, it just, like, the fact that they come in and they, like, 
lounge around. Like they're rude before they're violent. Yep. It makes like they're like their dick swinging is just being like. Well, it is, and it's, and it's backed roof. up. Yeah, and it's backed up by like hundreds of years of dick swinging. Yes, they they have no doubt whatsoever that this is just they're just toying. It's just a little like game to them, and they're trying to set it up. Basically, the entire reason for all of this madness and cruelty and ultra violence is just to get Caleb an easy victim. <laughs> <laughs> but yep. I like that they stick with Caleb. That never, never compromises. And I yeah. like the way that, like, okay, so he doesn't, then they're mad at him, and then there's this big, the cops come onto them, because James LaGrosse gets away and leads them to their hideout. They're, then Catherine Brigolo brings us into this amazing shootout sequence that's so uh, well done, too. Yeah. Like, her, I mean, obviously, she, you know, she's gonna do everything from Point Break to Zero Dark Thirty. She is as good as of an action filmmaker as there is in the universe. You know? Oh yeah, uh, but it's just like it was there from the start. She's got it, like exactly how to do this. But then, like Caleb does some brave stuff to save the crew. I love that plot device because it's like it buys him more, buys him in the movie more time, mm-hmm. essentially. And, and it feels believable. It's like, yeah, he saved their lives. Of course, they'd be like, you know, what, you're one into of us it, now. and it was cool, man. But you gotta, you gotta kill somebody. Yeah, you gotta some eat point. some blood, buddy. And then it gets personal. Caleb's family gets involved, and we'll let. I, you know, let's let, let's let the audience discover yeah. the joys if they haven't seen this movie. It's high, it's tight, it's high, it's ultimately incredibly satisfying. Everyone's great in it. Lance Henriksen is a great, mean, cruel leader. Yeah. Of this gang. There's some images, there's this image, like this like backlit moon image of them walking over this hillside that is, is just there's so many good images in this movie. There's a scene where, uh, toward the climax, where our vampires do get caught in sunlight. That's really horrifying and becomes sympathetic to them. Yeah. It's um, it's inc- it's really really well done. Just like yeah, just the shootout alone, the dynamics of that, where like light is like being streamed in. As increasingly so as bullets you know pierce the wall of the building they're located it's just yeah it's incredible yeah, it's, yeah. You, gotta, you gotta watch this one folks it's um and only budgeted five million this was a low budget movie That's and crazy the absolute like heights that and magic that she reaches with it it's again i mean i said it earlier it's one of our favorite films that uh in our house Mm-hmm. No, it's a, it's kind of a yearly watch. I actually looked at Letterbox and I saw I had already watched it this year. Wow. So this is the second time <laughs> I'd seen this movie this year. Um, we had a very memorable screening of it um, a few years ago, the New Beverly, where they paired it with Jennifer's Body. Ooh, that's a good combination. It was a very nice evening, and I know Karen Kusama, the great director of Jennifer's Body, is a huge Near Dark fan mm. as well. And uh, yeah, top of the line double feature there top of line movie this yeah. is a great horror movie if you if you if watch it it's our popcorn pick of the week folks popcorn pick of the week yeah two th- <laughs> two thumbs up but what yes. did the what did the, patrick what did the critics say oh no i hope they were nice were they... um 82 percent 
Okay. On Rotten Tomatoes. A little Near low, Dark, but that's fair. Yeah, a little low. Near Dark is at once a creepy vampire film, a thrilling western, and a poignant family tale with humor and scares in abundance. All true. <laughs> yes. Um, Jonathan Rosenbaum of the Chicago Reader, great critic, mm. was impressed by Bigelow's first foray into big budget films with the Hillbilly Vampire movie, describing it as beautifully shot. Uh, in his review for the Globe and the Mail, Jay Scott wrote, Bill Paxton is the undead sex symbol. It's exceptional, but not exceptional enough to put across the cop-out that concludes the film. Mm. 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 Um, Richard Corliss Time Magazine said it was weird and beautiful. The all-time teenage vampire love story. Cool. Uh, Richard Schickel, also of Time, considered, it, considered the film a clever variant on the vampire film genre. And Peter Travers of Rolling Stone concurred, calling it gory and gorgeous. Uh, Alan Jones of the Radio Times awarded it four out of five stars, calling it an 80s horror landmark and one of the best vampire films ever made. Visually stunning and frightening package, spinning a genuinely scary tale and heightened by the standout degenerate performances of Henriksen and Paxton. (laughs) All true. <laughs> oh, man, standout degenerate performances. What in that what is like, I see that in a review. I'm like, that's a movie I'm going to see. Yes. You know, I want to I want to see, see it. Um they talked about remaking it. The Platinum Dunes crew, Michael Bay's remake label that did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh no. Nightmare on Elm Street and all those ones in the early in the in the aughts. Uh they they uh they were gonna do it, but they put it off because they thought that Twilight kind of stole all of its thunder about Ooh. a young vampire, non vampire in love. <laughs> I mean, here's my take. Uh if Michael Bay's doing it, it has to be him directing, and you gotta get Mark Wahlberg as Severin, and he's in character as Father Stu. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <God. laughs> Father Stu is a vampire now. I don't, I just don't think like yeah, I don't think you can replace this cast with a bunch of CW hunks. And no. like I think uh this is this is this cast is one of my favorite casts I can think of. Everyone's great in it. Um should be noted the movie was a box office failure. Um it uh only went on only made three point four million, but its cult status is firmly entrenched. It's a movie that once you see it, you are a fan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't recommend it more. And yeah, this is it, yeah, this is a good. It's, yeah, and it's also you know what? Like there are definitely scary moments, but I don't think the scares are like the. I think it's a great, just it's a good like action movie. It's a good like there's like action movie mood piece, teen romance. Um, yeah. Ooh, a great, just a great movie to have on in the background if you're like having a Halloween party. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, like I've attended like two or three, and like for some reason, all the Halloween parties I'm attending, they always have like a movie on mute. And this would be at the last one I was at, the one from last week, uh, they had Hubie, they had a black and white Hubie Halloween, which I was fascinated by. They like, yeah, had, like, it would it was, stop me, it would stop me in my tracks. Too. Yeah, I was like, it's like Hubie Halloween as if like it went through like the black and white, the mist filter. And I was like, whoa, this adds another we player. Seen, we haven't seen Don and Patrick in like an hour and 15 minutes. What are they doing? They just got sucked into Hubie Halloween. <laughs> yeah, there's not even the volumes down. There's no subtitle. They're just watching it for the for the moves. <laughs> They're just watch. Yeah, it's like the cin- the cinema of Hubie Halloween. Um, <laughs> cinema of Hubie Halloween. Yes, but um, you know, Lance is a working actor 
He's a, he he is not gonna stop. So right after near dark, the very nary a year wow. later, he's in our next film. Oh my goodness! Which is of course 1988's Pumpkinhead, the directorial Ooh. debut of special effects artist Stan Winston, who of course did the majority of the effects in James Cameron's movies. Oh my god! Yeah, the, 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 man, there's just this is like another little squad. <laughs> this. This is, it's really cool. This world of dudes and gals who are just making these genre movies roughshod throughout the 80s and 90s. Uh, yes, yeah, so parallel to like the slickness of the Scott people and whatnot, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it feels a little more homemade than the, Scott, yeah. the Scots do. A little more love. Yeah, a little more. Not that they didn't put love in their movies, but there's definitely like, yeah, it's like these guys care about their pumpkin heads and their slimy vampires. Like, for sure. Absolutely. And then, um, so this was Stan Winston was the, you know, when I was a kid and you you told me you had that special effects book. Yes. You used to comb through too. Stan Winston, you know, superstar of -hmm. special effects. Household name, if there was one, of Mm -hmm. special effects. So, of course, he gets a go at um, directing his own movie. What came out of it was Pumpkinhead. Screenplay by Mark Patrick Carducci and Gary Garani. Story by Mark Patrick Carducci, Stan Winston, and Richard C. Weinman. Based on Pumpkinhead by Ed Justin. Which is like a... um, It was like a poem or something. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it it was a poem. Cool. The pumpkin huh. head poem. <laughs> huh. uh, was it the was it the the, the 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 was it like the little ditty the kids were singing? Is that the poem? Maybe. Like, um, the cool part about it is Lance Henriksen is the unequivocal lead of this movie. Yeah. Um, they um, the De Laurentiis, Dino De Laurentiis, producer extraordinaire, sent the script to Stan Winston, expecting him to do the creature effects, but Winston saw it as his opportunity to make his directorial debut. Um, they built up the clearly though it does feel like um the pumpkinhead character and suit was the great concern of oh, everyone yeah. involved. Um, <laughs> film, yeah. And I noticed this too, and I I wanted to look this up, but filming took place in Los Angeles, California, and I think it's a real detriment to this movie. It feels super set bound, and when they're outside, like Griffith Park kind of vibes and the story takes place in like the ozarks right yeah and it feels like yeah and it feels like the 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 south it it feels like it takes place in the ozarks but it also like you have like kind of like wild west south you have like louisiana swamp south like every type of south is in this movie it is wild and then city kids who are able to get there with relative ease with their dirt bikes yeah, like it's like these kids that look like they fucking like came it's out there really, from Thousand Acres. It's a real, yeah, yeah. It's like, where'd you guys come, Sherman Oaks? <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> and right. it's a missed opportunity because I think that there's like a really cool vibe mm-hmm. and a specificity that could have been found in making this like a Ozark hill people like folklore type thing. Yeah, I think oh, that, that like it's like there, like the. The, the seasoning is there and it's just it's a little cheap yeah <laughs> it's day, like i think is yeah. the issue 
I mean, like you look at like the budget; it's like three point five million dollars. Yeah, it yeah, would have less than Near Dark, even. God, yeah, and it would have been like, a... stretches its five like completely. Yeah, and you know they're putting like three million of that went to Pumpkinhead. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like... Well, well, folks, Pumpkinhead looks great. Don't he get rules. Pumpkinhead love, does look love... great. This is this Why is, the fuck this is he called Pumpkinhead. He does not look like a pumpkin. <laughs> It's a, it's a False cool, advertising. Like, cool name. Okay. Should be note that the that the film was originally entitled Vengeance: Colon The Demon. <laughs> okay. Okay. You know it's it is what it is. It's like a late eighties monster horror quickie. Yeah. Um, but there is some interesting stuff in it. And Lance, I had never seen it before. Had you seen it I, before? No, I've never seen it either. It's always been on like my list because it's like yeah, it's one of those too. movies. That's, yeah, it's always one of those movies that's kind of like talked um it's like similar to like chuck you're like you know it's like in that world but it's always like a tier lower i guess yeah and we don't do um jen's probably brought up on her show we don't do like our horror tastes don't lean really heavily in the creature direction Mm. in our house they're a little more in the near dark the bad behavior of people who look like people yeah you're (laughs) like yeah you're like get out of here harry mood oriented kind of mm. stuff um less yeah, than you're like, like creatures gotcha yeah you're like get out of here harry i want to hang with the hendersons yeah i know give me give me lit gal yeah you know? oh yeah i mean that would be the thing it's like thinking about like what's the scariest villain you could think of. i don't know lit gal and blowout the diploma <laughs> yes <laughs> you know like, which is said his thing is so great it's like he's this hired killer who just kind of takes it too far. He gets a little too into it. Yep. And it's... it's... I love that one so much. Oh, Blowout Rolls. It's a perfect... It's like one of the... It's so perfect. (laughs) Yeah, it's a perfect movie. It's a tattoo. The best best role John Travolta will ever have. And I... I I, I got another argument I had with Jesse at one of our movie nights. Because I was like saying I'm back on board with Travolta. Like, like mm-hmm. I went, I had kind of a roller coaster with him, and now mm-hmm. I'm back. Like I'm a fan. I like him yeah. a lot. And he's like, no, he's not. No, no, come on. And I was like, no, man, he's great. He's and good. You blow out alone. He's sincere. He's never meta. He's never ironic. I don't think he knows how to do it. No. And I mean, I've seen they... the fanatic. He can't. He can't be that. Yeah. To do what he does in that movie. Anyway, that was the John Travolta corner. Um. Back to Pumpkinhead. Basically, so Pumpkinhead... Patrick, you ever have a movie where, like, one moment throws you throughout the entire movie and you just kind of can't get over it? And then, like, it kind of blinds you. Like, I'll never forget when I saw Collateral and Tom Cruise shoots Mark Ruffalo. Oh. And I was like, oh my god. What? And it, like, knocked me out the first time I saw the movie and took the second time I saw it to see Collateral for all of its, like, glory. Yeah, you're just um, kind of stuck in that one moment. I was like, whoa, they did that? So, Pumpkinhead had one for me. Oh. So, in essence, we get this first five minutes. It's Lance Henriksen, who's a widower. Hold on. You were right about the Mr. Show, Fairsley. Yeah, <laughs> it is. Uh, it's, it's the fucking, a, like, uh... one's a general stole. <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and, and hey, uh, they sometimes don't have apples, I've heard. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, no <laughs> <laughs> no see that if he brought Pumpkinhead for that reason to go yeah. after big the big ralphs oh man 
What did come with your children? Leave with your children. <laughs> That's the Fairsley difference. Oh man, one of the one of the great sketches of our time. Yeah, we'll put that on our. We'll put that on the Twitter feed too if you've seen it. It's well worth yeah. it. Um, but anyway, so Lance is Tom Harley. Uh, he owns. Um, I love. I thought it was very cute. The his general store had the and son written in writing on there um he he's got a little boy who looks nothing like him no where did this child come from nikki looking kid and um (laughs) to talk to Stuart little in a second you know they live in in the hills and they're doing their best his son makes him a weird necklace that's very sweet, but it's kind of weird. Um, yeah, I would definitely be like, huh, they have a, a dog son. that's they have a very ill-behaved dog. Yeah, and uh, they they go to the general store to get to work one day, and one of the one of the hill people comes down and is like, "We need feed or something." And Lance like, "I'll drive it up," and he tells his boy, his like five year old. <laughs> yeah, at best, <laughs> Why, maybe maybe Hold- five. Hold down the fort for me. Yeah, it's a gentleman's <laughs> five. Yeah. Like Meanwhile, all of these like 1980s city assholes show yeah. up with their it's motorcycles. Like all the kids from Chopping Mall, basically. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, we're gonna spoil it here. Pumpkinhead, I rented from Amazon. I don't know how you watch. How did you watch it? I think I rented it on Amazon as well. I think I must have rented it. So on Amazon. okay, we're gonna spoil it. Because we gotta spoil this part. Um, yeah, it's important. They get off their motorcycles, out of their bikes, and they're they're all like, yeah, classic chopping mall, but not even as fun as the chopping mall people kind nah. of deal. They and they're just like, you know what? This the side of the road. This seems like a perfect place to do like motocross stunts. Yes. <laughs> and their ill-behaved dog runs across the street, and the little boy chases after him. Runs right on the motorcycle track and gets run over. He this, dies. They kill immediately, him immediately, like minute, like him. eleven. This kid is te- dead. He is eating dirt. <laughs> and I look over. I'm like, "Well, that was really unpleasant." <laughs> Threw me. Threw me for the, rest of the movie. I was it's like, crazy. Killed the kid. Oh, like, also, all Patrick and I were like, "Say, so was like, yeah, like." What if it was just like this monster comes out of the woods and these hill people led by Lance Hendrickson have to stop a pumpkin head? That rules! Just yeah. like So then basically, you know, Lance is understandably deeply it's upset. Myth. So he's the only actor we recognize in the movie, and his son has been killed. So are we on Lance's side? Do we have Yes! Yes! We have his sympathy. Yes. So he so this is the funniest part. So he goes to the local witch. <laughs> I love the. Well, first he goes to like you know the Shaney Town, the insane like grapes of wrath Shaney Town. One it's of the like... one of the kids is Maya Bialik. Did you oh, just catch so that? Crazy. They're like all the kids. For her. So I did like not a see that. Kids running around. You could probably buy one of the kids and you replace his son. <laughs> I know. Honestly, they're all like wearing burlap sacks too. It looks. It's, like, it's crazy. It's crazy. There's no actual research done. Into like any of this, it's all yeah, just like, like yeah, it's probably why not. Yeah, it's like this, this guy's idea of the South is like he, he like he watched one episode of Beverly Hillbillies and then read a little Abner comic strip and was like, okay, I got it. I would love to see Robert Eggers remake this movie, like with Ooh. all of his like, because I remember Richard Brody 
he, the funniest thing he's done recently, his review of the Northman was re- he called it research the movie. Oh my god, that's a really funny. funny. I like that is a good. I like not only is a fan of Richard Burton, yeah. that's a solid own. I love that. Yeah, that's pretty good, man. Keep yeah. on shining, you crazy diamond. We love you, Brody. Yeah, don't get rid of him, even if I disagree. No. That's like the best critics are the ones you could disagree with, but still like nod your head like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you're around. I'm still doing your yeah. weird shit. That's cool. You're a crank, but you're a crank we love. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, but yeah, I think Robert Eggers would like do a bunch of like research into like the folklore of the Ozarks and stuff like that and actually make like a really fascinating yeah. movie. You would make the Appalachian version of Candyman, basically. Yeah, which this could have been. This could have been. If only! If only, but no. Um, so, he's like, tell me where the witch lives. <laughs> the guy's like, like, no! Stay away, stay, stay away from that witch, but she lives up there. You'll find her. <laughs> yeah, no, one of the ne'er-do-well kids is like... He's got this, me... like, toe-headed son. <laughs> yeah, give him a $10, and I'll tell you oh, where the witch is. Name? Oh, he, the kid's name is Bunt. <laughs> Bunt. Oh my god. Like one of the people that like hang out with oh, me forever. Yeah. <laughs> Bunt. Yeah. Bunt. Oh, uh, so Lance is introduced to the witch. He mm. tells him like, eh, eh, you know, uh, we can um can't wait the dead, but if you want revenge, I I know a fella. I know but, how to wrestle up some crawdads. But it comes at a terrible price. Yeah. He has to go to the old graveyard. You'll recognize that it. it's the one with the pumpkins. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, that's why this movie's called Pumpkinhead. Okay. So they use blood, and there's a ceremony between Lance's blood and Son's blood and dead body blood, and it's it's a little convoluted, but regardless, it resurrects the demonic monster referred to as Pumpkinhead. Now, I will say, I do love the sequence, because you get to see, like, pumpkin head grow in front of you yes and it is interesting there's like one moment where i'm like oh pumpkin head's a little cutie that's kind of fun but then like mm. increasingly like as as increasingly, they, uh... pumpkin head is not so cute <laughs> yeah not so cute it's like goes from gizmo to goes from gizmo to spike pretty quickly <laughs> yes and um meanwhile back at the cabin the kids yeah, the most... are having a battle <laughs> joel we should joel. talk about joel <laughs> who... <laughs> Who's the guy who runs over young, young, uh, young little boy, Billy, yeah. young Billy. Of course, his name's Billy, oh, um, who not only shows no remorse, but has priors. And if he's caught, he's going to the slammer. He goes, you don't want me to go to the slammer. What? <laughs> That's okay. so crazy. Also, like, just like total lunatic. Just yeah, total... he starts. He locks his friends in a bathroom. He hits one of them with like a brick. Like, and then though he starts to feel remorse, but uh oh, too late because Pumpkinhead's mm-hmm. there. Um, as expected, Pumpkinhead begins um dispatching our teens. Yes. He's do he's doing as a Pumpkinhead does. So here's where the moral issue for me comes into the movie. Mm. Lance begins to realize, like, oh my god, what have I done? Mm-hmm. I'm c- committing all of these murders via pumpkin head. Yeah, oh no. <laughs> uh, maybe it's because as a father, I feel things differently now about such matters. <laughs> moral, moral matters. But I am still at the corner of 
Let them have it, Pumpkinhead. Like, yeah. don't feel bad, Lance. They deserve they, it. <laughs> yeah, they fucking ran over his kid and Left then him like, in a field. Insane. Just to yeah. Yeah, and so it's like I would have liked to see I think Lance go full villain. Ooh. And like not show remorse in the kids, like but then you'd have to cast more charismatic kids that you actually you didn't care about any of the kids. That nah. was kind of the big issue. So it comes down to Lance has to kind of like we got our final survivors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lance. We got Bunt. He's in the mix. Yeah, Bunt. Stop the, learn how to stop the pumpkin head. You know, long story short, they learn Lance has to sacrifice himself because they're like genetically connected. Yeah, it's very odd. I guess, like, yeah, like every time they don't do a good job of like, they're not really consistent with like what he feels and what pumpkin head feels. Because I feel like sometimes Lance will like, you know, um, like it's very clear that they're connected, and sometimes like something will happen to Lance and Pumpkinhead's yeah. like, yeah, whatever, I don't care, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's always a hard trope in movies. The like, I have a psychic connection to the killer, and I have mm-hmm. visions of what they're doing to kind of explain that in any way that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> well, what was the movie you watched where uh, Donald Pleasance eats at that Wendy's in Italy? Oh, nothing underneath. Yeah, where <laughs> there was the most yeah. half-assed version of that. <laughs> ever committed to film like they start the movie like yeah we're doing this then it's like yeah nah. yeah it wasn't working very well we got donald pleasance let him do some stuff <laughs> yeah let him eat a frosty and and, and run. <laughs> the, you know probably one of the best culturally like, the cultural gastronomical centers of the world <laughs> yeah yeah we're, we're in italy what are we going we're going to wendy's <laughs> the classic italian meals the classic hamburger italian it's a square hamburger. Oh my god! <laughs> Look at the map. Exactly. So, uh, Lance sacrifices himself. They save the day. Pumpkinhead's destroyed. Then, um, Ed Lance is buried in Pumpkinhead's grave. Mm. Uh, he's still got the necklace on. Very poignant. Um, and uh, waiting for the next person to resurrect Pumpkinhead. Mm. Um, great effects. Fun monster. Yeah. Um, movie was given a limited release by United Artists in October of '88, and again in January of '89, and yet still only made 4.4 million at the box office on a 3.5 million dollar budget. Uh, of course, this since found a massive cult following, like all of these things tend to do, mm-hmm. and spawned a direct-to-video sequel, to TV film sequels, and a comic book series, and naturally. A reboot is currently in the works. Ooh. I, okay, weren't, weren't like the two TV movie sequels like um like didn't Lance Henriks, Henriksen like immediately like regret like being part of those films? Yeah, I'm sure he did. I mean, it, it, yeah, <laughs> I think I think it was like I'm doing. It was a classic a classic film uh, situation where it's like you know like our your Al Pacino's or Snipes's were like. Yeah, I, I think these were for alimony. Like, I was... Yeah. And Lance buck. has been married three times, so it's there. Yep, um, yep, yep. Hey, everyone has know, a... Sequels. Sequel, Pumpkinhead 2, Bloodwigs. <laughs> it's released Blood... directly to video in 1994. Bloodwigs? Bloodwigs. Okay. That's uh, the October special at Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get after you eat Buffalo Wild Wings. Yeah, ooh, ooh, <laughs> yeah, ouch. See, 
Yes, uh, the two sequels that were on the Sci-Fi Channel were Pumpkinhead, Ashes to Ashes, and Pumpkinhead, Blood Feud. Oh, that one I read about. That one's the one with like the Hatfield and McCoys, which is insane. I want. I kind of. I'm yeah. curious, and even Lance though I know it's in, bad. Lance is in it, um, somehow. Um, <laughs> he, wait, yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, as of November 2021, their develop- Paramount Players is developing the film. A script has been written, and news Ooh. of who will direct will be announced in the coming months. That was last year. Um, there's been a comic book series, Pumpkinhead, The Rites of Exorcism. Um, there was a video game called Blood Wings. Pumpkinhead's Revenge. The game was poorly received. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I don't see a world where this game makes a lot of positive sense. Yeah, like, oh, you want to play the Pumpkinhead video game 15 years after the movie came out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, the Pumpkinhead has, has a 65% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, um, fair. Fair. Uh, with effects work and solid direction from Stan Winston and Lance Henriksen adding welcome gravitas pumpkin head is a creature feature that stands a cut above yeah sure yeah, yeah why not why not I think there's some story stuff but as a creature feature I think it's very successful yeah so in a purely in a pure monster movie kind of way I think that there I think it's more that they left some stuff that on the table that could have really put this movie as a cut above yeah, I think that it, that's what's disappointing to us. It's definitely yeah, just one of those movies where, like, yeah, if they had just had a little more time to focus on the story, maybe had a little more cash to get, like, slightly, you know, stronger actors or more interesting, like, uh, leads to play the teens or something. Had they, like yeah. you said, like, if they'd stayed in that little Appalachia and just hung out with, like, a bunch of, like, uh, just a bunch of MC Gainies and, like, Troy yeah, Evanses. yeah. I think that that would, like, and I like, um, I think one of the cool things, like, some of your favorite, some of, like, the best horror movies, like, are about, like, where they take place. Mm. Like, a cool atmosphere, a cool, like, like, setting. Like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is such, like, a spooky, gross setting. Like, it's, oh. it's very, it's very cool. <laughs> oh, for sure. Even like, uh, was it the movie like X recently where like they're on that farm yeah. and there's like that like nice little lake with a crocodile in it. Like, yeah, no, it's or like every so er, like, I mean, like, you know, just the thing in Prince of Darkness come to mind for John Carpenter, like that church in Prince of Darkness or like the station in the thing. Yeah, they're just yeah, you're so right in the sense there was like the only cool set piece really was like the old ladies like little like mm-hmm. bog swamp shack. Uh and it's not like there's ever gonna be any action there really beyond the inception of a All of it head. felt like it was on a sound stage. Yeah. Which, like and I I know it's just like watching things. I just um like real locations really do it for me. Like in near dark, like everything felt like Oh, you're out there and set in the Southwest. Oh yeah, there was like uh, there was like texture and like depth to that world, and this one felt like yeah, it felt like at some points they were like filming on like a chintzy Broadway stage, yeah, or something like yeah, like there yeah, there was like Dog Patch the Musical was happening or whatever. <laughs> we gotta get out of here. There's a matinee of cats up next. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it 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 was it's fun. It's a fun movie. Another fun one for your spooky season edition. Lance is great in it. He does his best. We're on his side. 
clearly. And it, mm -hmm. I just think like there's a few missed opportunities, but it probably was again like three point five million dollar budget and Dino De Laurentiis involvement. They're cutting yeah. corners, you know. Oh, for sure. And it's like, yeah, they're like... doing what they can. They're doing the best that they can. And they and they knew like and Stan Winston smartly was like, We're gonna make the monster kick ass. Because that's what people are gonna be talking about. And I will say, like, Pumpkinhead delivers. Like, it's a cool-looking monster. Like, the design cool is interesting. It's very unique, too. Like, there aren't, like, a lot of, like... Uh, I feel like there just aren't that many, like... Um, like, there are movies with creatures and stuff, sure. But, not, like, Pumpkinhead just seems weirdly unique. It's not like... Yeah, this is not a Wolfman or a Dracula. It's, it's, a, it's a fun but goofy name. Oh, yeah. Very silly. Yeah, it, it doesn't make... Yeah. Like, yeah it doesn't make watch, sense, but it's fun. I was expecting a headless horseman. That's what I was expecting. Like, we had a pumpkin for a head. And yeah. I'm glad... I, I guess I'm glad it's not that, because that would not... That'd just be very silly. But, uh... Although, that could be a fun, silly movie in itself. I don't know. Yeah, that could be. And it should be noticed that the, uh... The cinematographer of, um... Pumpkinhead also was the cinematographer of King of New York. Wow. Also the cinematographer of Sugar Hill. Oh my god. <laughs> so a couple of uh a couple of big uh, Academy Academy movies. Uh and <laughs> and did a lot with Abel Ferrara, but to this day is working with um did uh Six Hundred Ground with Michael Bay. Did wow. the snake, the, and has got Murder Mystery 2, the Sandler movie. Ooh, coming he's out back, soon. baby. And uh David Lowry's Peter Pan and Wendy, so really doing a lot of stuff to this very day cinematographer oh, um lance ain't done working though no 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 1988 he's also in survival quest uh written and directed by don coscarelli i've never seen it <sighs> i want to i wanted to do that's a what a great combination that should have that yeah. should have been there should have been more like collabs between those two fellows and just kind of nonstop. he's in um house three johnny handsome He's in uh, Hit List, directed by William Lustig of uh, Vigilante fame. Wow. Uh, which is a quite a, quite a, it's Lustig's one, um, like, studio-ish kind of movie. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, Lance Henriksen versus uh, Jan Michael Vincent. <laughs> That's like his one studio-ish movie? Yeah. I love it. That's great. It, it is this part where Lance is under Jan Michael Vincent's car, and they're in this parking lot. And he's like hanging on. He's trying to get up because he's trying to kill Jan Michael Vincent. And they're driving toward those spikes in the parking lots that you go when you exit parking lots. God. And Lance sees it. I won't say what happens, but as a viewer, I was like, "Oh my god, they're gonna do it! They're gonna I'm run just, him into those spikes!" I'm just looking at the cast of this movie, and it's just all bad. like Charles Napier, yeah. Rip Torn, Jer Burns from uh, Justified. Yeah, yeah. God, man, I want to see this movie so badly so, now. So uh, the third reference to him, Jesse and I, in one of our initial movie night runs. Uh, we tracked it down. We own it. I own it on VHS. It's the, currently the only way to see it, and that's how uh, we watched it. Incredible! <laughs> we bought it. We bought the video off of eBay because we were like, "Look at that cast! Look at the director! We have to see this movie." You have to. It's yeah. Oh man, you're keep. Well, and you're keeping. You're keeping it alive. You need to. You're keeping. The, you're keeping the, the 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 flame of Jan Michael Vincent. You know, it's like yeah. that. Like 
Yeah, it's like that, like, in, was it in Catholicism? Isn't there, like, like a, a candle you're supposed to keep light, lit at all times or whatever? So, yeah, Jan you're Michael like, you're, Vincent candle. You're keeping that Jan Michael Vincent candle. You're uh, doing God's work. Doing God's work. <laughs> uh, but do it, speaking of God's work, 91, Lance is in Stuart Gordon's The Pit and Pendulum. Oh. Also in 91, another movie night movie that we've watched, Stone Cold. The action oh. film centered around NFL player Brian Bosworth. Yeah, the the Bosworth sons. <laughs> yeah, in which the villains are God tier Lance Henriksen and William Forsythe. Are the two villains? Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. I want to see Brian Bosworth. The Bosworth it's a motorcycle gang. Uh, it's it was really good. We really we both really liked it. <laughs> Um, uh, 92 is in Jennifer 8 a thriller with uh, Andy Garcia of Black Crane and Uma oh. Thurman and John Malkovich all in that and then in 1992 he stars in Alien 3 our third and final film we'll be discussing in this Lance Henriksen episode we had so many options at the end I think we'll do a uh, quick pick of something we didn't cover that we also like Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to the end of it so it's Alien 3 Alien 3, very, very controversial movie to this day Ooh, among yeah. genre fans, alien fans. <laughs> among uh, the director himself. A- David Fincher himself. <laughs> um, very controversial movie. Uh, it, really interesting one. I remember my first introduction to Alien 3. So I, um, I was a kid, my dad, and he did this with a few things, but uh, he showed me to add the paper for like i think it was maybe a re-release of the original alien mm-hmm. and he goes he pulled up his shirt and put his fist under his shirt he goes in this he goes he goes like this he started doing this <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> mimicking putting a fist through the shirt like the desk to the chest burster sequence he was very good at alluding to things that i was not old enough to see that then he's like i don't know if he was like implanting it that oh maybe he won't want to but i was like the second you tell me that this happens i want to see every bit of this <laughs> like, yes oh 100 percent. and he was telling me how scary and gross it was and i was like well, that's yes, a nice, i want yeah, to see it, that and that's a nice way of telling you it's scary without like you know straight up freakifying you like that's like yeah. the perfect like yeah that's a good move he, that's a good dad like it's awesome <laughs> you gotta yeah, you're see gonna it love someday. this <laughs> you're gonna love it in like 10 years but then we had already seen die hard so we are anxiously awaiting Die Hard Part 2, which we, of course, we were so young, we had to wait till video for Die Hard mm. 2. We rent Die Hard 2. What's the first trailer mm. on Die Hard 2? Alien 3 is the first. <laughs> and that was my first introduction to the entire Alien series. Yeah. It was that shot of the alien with its head next to Ripley drooling as she's like covered in sweat and crying and bald. And I was like, well, this seems like a very frightening thing <laughs> i mean like that there are like so many iconic like images in this it's there kind are. of incredible yeah like i was thinking i it was in the trailer too and it was so scary and even in the movie it's scary like when the alien finally emerges and she runs into the mess hall and she's like it's here it's fucking here i'm gonna there, die <laughs> yeah we're, we're dead we are dead yeah. <laughs> like and it is so like and it's because the movie is so like, and you could tell from the trailer, the movie is so grim. 
and so dark and so like like fatalistic almost in every element of it (laughs) does that make for a good time does that make for a good time following aliens which is so like and i was reading in adam Naiman's book mind games which i'm holding up right here about david wow uh uh you know, he's talking about Cameron for all of Cameron's action and futurism and everything like that. I think Cameron really is a sentimentalist. Yeah. He can't, yeah. And that's what actually makes him the billion dollar man mm-hmm. is that he does all of this other stuff, but he, his heart will still go on. He is still Bill Paxton crying at the end of the story in Titanic. That is <laughs> Bill Paxton's character in Titanic is probably the closest to a James Cameron surrogate we've ever seen in JC's yeah. movies. I wow. Yeah. I can't believe we didn't talk. Maybe we did, but I don't think we talked about that. Like it just popped in my head. I was like, yeah, that's him. Yep. hundred percent. And then he's like moved. Yeah, he's he's grizzled, but under that grizzled exterior is a you know the soft, gooey uh, heart of a man who believes in true love, love and family, and the American dream and everything in between. David Fincher may not share the same sentimental belief system. <laughs> it's debatable. <laughs> it's debatable. Not a lot David of sentimentality Fincher. in Seven. <laughs> Or all the way through Gone Girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mank that, comes the closest, I would say. That is insane. Yeah, it is like yeah, you yeah. know Yeah, you know you're not a sentimental man if Mank is like your heart your heart on your sleeve film. And um you know, we can get in talk about it in detail here as we go on, but I'm a huge David Fincher fan. I think oh, you're we've made that clear as we've gone through the show. <laughs> we, we record the show at the height of Mank, fe- Mank Fever. Yeah, Mank Mania. <laughs> I went and saw Mank at the New Beverly like this year. <laughs> and it's I think, a bop! And I think, I think it's going to probably among his movies be the most forgotten. Yeah. You know, which, as, is... which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's the most unlikely of his movies. Even more so than Alien 3. Um, David Fincher, though, is such an interesting case. Um, he just turned 60 years old. Just happy birthday in August. Um, and so his his entire story is he's from the Bay Area. He was he's like he's not a, like a cinephile, but he's a big like he's a fan of like the he comes to that Orson Welles school of like it's the biggest toy train set a little boy could ever ask for. He wants, he likes the complete control and world, the building of this like very, very distinct universe to his standards. He is a control freak. Yeah. He is known as the smartest guy in the room, in any room he's in. And he will probably let you know about that. Ooh. Which has gotten him into some hot water, especially with studio executives who he really looks down on. Like. Because he does not feel that they build. They don't, they aren't the hands-on craftspeople. Like craftspeople, if they, if they live up to the standard that he's setting on the set, they all like think he's wonderful. They love working with him because he holds a high standard. But if you're not living up to the standard, 
Bye bye. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's tough. And so basically, he did not go to film school. He did not even go to college. He started working for Lucas Films in the Bay Area, like right out of high school in their effects department. He did stuff on Empire Strikes Back. He did stuff on the Indiana Jones films. Oh my God. In like the set department. He worked and just built his way up as like a crew guy, basically. Mm -hmm. But a crew guy with like a complete and utter. He worked at ILM. That was where. And so it was Return of the Jedi and Temple of Doom. Pardon me. Um, 84, he left ILM to direct his first television commercial, which is the fetus smoking a cigarette for the American Cancer Society. Oh my God. That's a tone. Yeah. And it's huge. It was huge. Like, obviously, every. They got eyes on it, on his. They're like, "Who the fuck is this guy who made this?" Uh, and you know, his. I would call like a sincere and honest nastiness that pervades his work. Like he's not being ironic. He's not doing it to be like he is kind of a stinker at times. I will give him that. But um, for the most part, he's like he sees like a a dreadful universe <laughs> yeah and his, his his worldview is uh his movies you know and uh, his, demonstrates his, it his vision of people in general i think is dim it's yes yeah, and it's dour it's very dour yeah. and grim yeah but this like sent him off he goes to la he's one of the major commercial and music video directors of the 1980s he co-founds a production company called propaganda films for directing commercials and music videos other propaganda directors included michael bay antoine fuqua michelle gondry spike jones alex proyas mark romantic zach snyder and gore verbinski a murder like much like rsa kind of a murderer's row of what was to come in the 1990s yeah that's like the next generation right there yeah Exactly. And he did, you know, you name it for all the big brands. Uh, he made iconic music videos, Aerosmith, Billy Idol, and prob- George Michael, and probably his most known collaborator was Madonna. He mm. did the Express Yourself, Oh Father, Vogue, and Bad Girl music videos, you know, as iconic as they get for that era of music videos he de- he declared music videos his film school on how to work efficiency with a small budget and under a time frame he is he is the a prime example and i think the right ex- on the job training rather than theory that you would mm. learn in some school like he just like our like ridley scott frankly he learned on the job like tony like and a lot of the best i think i think the and nasty life experiences were also you know probably part of that i also read the adam Neiman book that apparently um i did not know this that he was rumored to have had a torrid affair with madonna during this time period too, which is kind of wild <laughs> kind of unexpected but wow all right on dude um so he was but he was bound to make his way to feature films being you know as cutting edge as he is mm-hmm. as is it frankly still is but was um with his uh commercial and video work so he was hired to his first feature film to direct was alien is alien 3 mm. big movie yeah <laughs> big movie huge <laughs> movie out of the gate <laughs> out of the gate and a very very troubled movie from 
this jump. After success of Aliens, obviously Aliens is a massive, you know, the Cameron Aliens, massive blockbuster. They want more Aliens. Uh, Brandywine producers Walter Hill and David Geiler, though, are um, concerned about repeating themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And they opt to explore the duplicity of the Weyland-Yutani Corporation, why they were so intent on using the aliens as biological weapons. Smart. I like yeah. it. I'm. I think that that's a you know corporate intrigue. I think that that's always been one of the cool things about the Alien series, is the um, always, always an interesting android and always an interesting corporate stooge. Yes, there's <laughs> always a suit. There's always a weird yeah. suit. A weird suit involved. They went through a ton of different concepts. They thought about and what they came across. They came into was they were going to make two movies simultaneously. Ooh. Uh one the third film the um and in the third film would be the protagonist would become Michael Bean's Hicks character with Ripley just doing a minor role. And then the fourth film would be the epic battle war film between humans and aliens. All of this sounds cool. Yeah, like a starship troopers but instead of bugs as aliens, I'm in. Um yeah, exactly. Uh, Scorny Weaver liked it all, liked the smaller role, um, and she was pissed still that uh, they had removed some of those scenes that we saw in the director's cut of Aliens, the backstory <laughs> and the hum- the human stuff. So she was like, "I just want to be done." Yeah. Um, 20th Century Fox was skeptical about all of this, though, mm. and but they agreed to finance the development, but they wanted Ridley Scott back to do <sighs> both of them. Interesting. And they would shoot them back to back, like the Back to the Future films or uh, the Matrix films or, you know, Lord of the Rings or whatever. Right. Ridley was very interested. But uh, re- as we know, around this time period, late 80s, early 90s, <laughs> you gotta get this is going to get in the way of Black Rain. <laughs> no, you got to oh. let Michael Douglas goof around in Japan. Some other stooge? No way. No way. <laughs> and then uh, would have gotten in the way of Thelma Louise. That kind of, so Ridley was busy and his obviously nonstop commercial work. Mm-hmm. So September of 1987, Guylan Hill approached cyberpunk author William Gibson to write Ooh. a third script. Very exciting. Uh, he, he he was uh, told to deliver the script by in a very quick time frame due to an impending writer's strike. Um, his script had strong interest in the Marxist space empire element. Uh, the following year, they went to Rennie Harlan, who they oh. liked his work in Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, about directing the next Alien movie. I think he could. Very hot, hot. Very, very hot at the time. And he probably would have pulled off a very workmanlike version. His version of Alien, it wouldn't be like a classic, but it would have been fun, I think. I think so, too. But I think it also, um, I think the thing that draws us to the Alien series is the having a distinct directorial voice in all six yeah. of the key Alien movies. That's is what fair. makes them like, I think what makes it a cut above, I think it was, that's what makes the early Mission Impossible movies a cut above, too. Mm-hmm. It gives you... I like the idea of this like flexible story and taking these like tropes that you have to include, but everything else is pretty wide open and just trying different versions 
I think that's right, like the right. like why well, you like the Batman movies, like even like how Todd Phillips Joker was like um, intriguing because he was like, I'm going to try it this way or yeah. I'm going to try it. Th- you know, I'm going to put Joker into Taxi Driver, basically. <laughs> yeah, know, like, or... like, yeah, like you want like it's nice to have someone with like a vision. Yeah, and I think that that's like what should be the cool things about these characters, the superhero characters or like the alien characters or Mission Impossible, like that are they're broad enough that they become flexible that you can push them into different types of movies. Mm-hmm. But they should not say like, okay, this one movie worked. We only make it like this. Yeah, that is like as much as I love the current iteration of the Mission Impossible films, like all the Macquarie stuff. It is like a, a bit of a bummer that we're not seeing like a Robert Eggers. Mission I think Impossible, yeah, I think that like there's a, a there's a fear that they're going to become a little samey. Yeah, and um. I never get seeing Mission Impossible 2 in the theater being like after the De Palma one and seeing the second one, you're like, the John Woo one, you're like, whoa, it's totally different. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, yeah. And like, even, yeah, they're, they all have different vibes and that's what makes them cool I and think, fun. I think that's super fun. And that's one of the reasons why I like the alien. Um, so, but unfortunately, William Gibson was clearly never going to be the studios cup of tea this is no. too this is too much of a damn original voice we know that um yeah. and they mockingly summed up the script as space commies hijack alien eggs big problem in mall world <laughs> okay <laughs> and, yeah and i guess i mean yeah it's going to be far more political far more um harder edged yeah. storyline wise heaven, heaven, heaven forbid we have to fucking think for a change yeah, like, heaven yeah. forbid. Uh, but it was very action oriented and had a you know they and they were excited about it but they were unsatisfied the overall unsatisfied David Geiler um, described it this is interesting and this is a very Hollywood thing a perfectly executed script that wasn't all that interesting very Ooh. real thing in Hollywood that's a very that's something you could actually do only in screenwriting is a perfectly executed script that isn't good. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like it can be it, it technically can all be there, but at the end of the day, you want to be entertained. And if yeah, he do that, then what's the point? Yeah, it's such a tough balance. Um, and they like certain parts. They like the idea, the subtext, the metaphor for HIV, <laughs> the alien virus, all that, which is which is certainly there. And I think it was actually felt in the final version. Yeah, movie. a little bit. I mean, the uh, shaved heads definitely. And if you wanted to, uh, in 2018, the William Gibson screenplay for Alien 3 was adapted into a comic book, and there's actually an audio ver- book version of it that was released in 2019 that you can get on Audible. Oh my god, I do have like the an Audible subscription. So and I did not. My... Yeah, that that could be very fun. So get this: Gibson was let go. Guess who the next screenwriter they brought in was? Mm. Eric Red. Of what? Near Dark, yes. <laughs> near Dark, Eric Red. Near Dark of Hitcher, Near Dark. He worked on it for less than two months, delivered his draft in February of 1989, later described his Alien 3 work as the one script I completely disowned because it was not my script. It was the rush production of too many story conferences and interference with no time to write and turned out utter crap. Aww. His approach, new set of characters, subplots, also introducing new breeds of Alien. Um, brand new type thing. 
In general, plot open with a team of special forces marines boarding the Sulaco and finding all survivors and fallen victim of the aliens. Afterwards, it moved to small town USA type city in a type of biodome in space, culminating in an all out battle with the townsfolk facing hordes of alien warriors. Yeah. I got it fun. Yeah. Uh, Hill and Tyler rejected it, though, for deviating too much from their idea mm. and eventually gave up on developing the two sequels simultaneously. Next up, David Tui was brought in. The- <laughs> Our boy from Pitch Black? Yes. Yes. Another fine option. <laughs> another, but another guy, nonetheless. He was brought in, instructed to start with William Gibson's script. Oh. Uh, changed his setting, though, to a prison planet. Uh-oh. Things Ooh. are starting to fall into place. Oh, man. Uh, which was being used for illegal experiments on the aliens for a biological warfare division. Harlan felt this approach was too similar to the previous movies, and he got sick and tired of developmental hell and walked out on the project to take on the Andrew Dice Clay vehicle, The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. Oh, no. Life, um, life man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know what? You got Sometimes you just got to earn that bread, brother. David Tui's script was delivered to Fox President Joe Roth, who, of course, directed Streets of Gold. Wow. <laughs> who did not like the idea of Ripley being removed from the script and declared Sigourney Weaver is the centerpiece of the series. And Ripley was really the only female warrior we have in our movie mythology. Sigourney Weaver was then called and was offered five million salary plus a share of box office receipts. Jesus Christ. Uh, she yeah. also requested the story be suitable, suitably impressive, original, and non-dependent on guns. Oh. Tui duly said about writing Ripley into his screenplay. So, as we're seeing here, we describe David Fincher as a truly independent mind who suffers no fools and doesn't like a bunch of bullshit. What we have thus far is a bunch of bullshit. (laughs) A lot of full suffering. And we are not done yet. (laughs) Oh, no. no. Walter Hill attended a screening of a film called The Navigator, a medieval odyssey, an Australian New Zealand code production directed by Vincent Ward, who also directed a film called Map of the Human Heart. Mm. He was suitably impressed. And he was like, Dude, my my dude Vince, do you want to direct Alien Three? <laughs> he accepted the project on the third call. He was uninterested at first in doing a sequel. Of course, as all things, Vincent Ward thought very little of David Tui's script, <laughs> and instead insisted on working up another idea. My God, I am involving Ripley's escape pod crash landing on a monastery-like satellite. Yes, this is like the wooden planet script. That's it's crazy. He developed this pitch on a flight to Los Angeles. I, <laughs> Once he got what? off the plane, went to the studio executives, and they approved of his idea. He was accepted to write Alien Three, and writer John Fasano was hired ah. to expand on this screenplay. Once Tui discovered that through a journalist friend, another script was being written concurrently with his, he went after Fox and eventually left the project. man so ward has got a broad huge vision of what it would be like 
let's get into it. Ward envisioned a plan whose interior was both wooden and archaic in design, where Luddite-like monks would take refuge. The story begins with a monk who sees a star in the east, Ripley's escape pod, and at first believes it to be this to be a good omen. Upon arrival, Ripley and increasingly suggestions of the alien presence, the monk inhabitants believe it to be some sort of religious trial for their misdemeanors, punishable by the creature that haunts them. By having a woman in their monastery, they wonder if their trial is partially caused by sexual temptation. As Ripley is the only woman to be in the monk to be amongst the all-male community in ten years, that lasted. <laughs> to avoid this belief and hopefully the much grimmer reality of what she has brought with her, the monks of the wooden satellite lock Ripley into a dungeon-like sewer and ignore her advice on the true nature of the beasts. The monks believe that the alien is in fact the devil. Primarily, though, stories about Ripley's own soul-searching, complicated by the seeding of the alien within her, and further hampered by her largely solo attempts to defeat it. Eventually, Ripley decides to sacrifice herself to kill the alien. Fox, of course, asks for an alternative ending, in which Ripley survived. <laughs> but Sigourney Weaver would only agree to do the movie if Ripley died. Wow. Woo! Uh, undeniably attractive, his idea... Very depth. Uh, Sigourney Weaver described the overall concept as very original and arresting. Mm-hmm. Um, it does seem to be kind of a broad, unique vision for yeah. where to go with this thing. Yeah, I love the idea of like, yeah, a bunch of like Trappist monks or something like having to fight like these insane H.R. Geiger creations. There's a lot going on there. Yeah. Divisive among the production crew. Producers of Brandywine just felt there were logistical problems of creating and maintaining a wooden planet in space. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that seems like a hard thing to do oh. uh, within the 90s. The yeah. logistics of it, while well, Fox executive John Landau, later known as James Cameron's producing partner, uh, considered Ward's vision to be more bent on the artsy-fartsy side than the big commercial one that Ridley Scott and James Cameron employed. Hmm. Um, uh, Ward managed to dissuade the producers of their idea in turning the planet into an ore refinery and monks into prisoners spoiler alert he didn't (laughs) (laughs) yeah we get the Ron Howard uh, (laughs) development uh, voiceover to go he didn't Vincent Um, didn't yeah he didn't uh, (laughs) eventually though Fox asked for a meeting with the director imposing a list of changes to be made refusing to do so Ward was fired. The main plot of the finished film, though, still follows Ward's basic structure. So then, taking over from the Fasano script, guess who took over on their next draft? That's right. Walter Hill and David Kyler just decided to do it uh, themselves. Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Hill's back, baby. And then they got so juiced by it, they brought in Larry Ferguson as a script doctor. Larry yeah. Ferguson, that's right, wrote Beverly Hills Cop 2. Back to our shit. Back to our bullshit. <laughs> yeah, we're back on the bull. Alien 3, back on that bullshit. Ferguson's work, though, was not well received in the production, particularly by Sigourney Weaver, who felt Ferguson made Ripley sound like a pissed off gym teacher. <laughs> uh, like short roll, on time but... before filming was due to commence. Hill and Geiler begin their own rewrite once again, melding aspects of the Ward Fasano script with Tui's earlier Prison Planet screenplay to create the basis, basis, mind you, 
of the final mm-hmm. film, not the final draft of a screenplay for the final film. Um, Sigourney Weaver also had a clause written in her contract stating the final draft should be written by Hill and Geiler, believing that they were the only writers besides James Cameron to write the character Ripley effectively in the first place. Oh my god. Um, at that point, Fox approached music video director David Fincher to replace Vincent Ward. Please. Fincher did further work with author Rex Pickett on the screenplay, um, who wrote the novel Sideways. Yes, that's right. Sideways. The what? Al- which became the Alexander Payne film. The wine book? The... <laughs> Not the two wine guys. The two wine guys! <laughs> and who was, who was fired unceremoniously by Hill and Geiler well, and who wrote the final draft of the screenplay. But David Fincher kept working with him for rewrites regardless. Oh my god. This, this is um, like, you're talking about Frankenstein earlier. This is like a Frankenstein's monster screenplay. Yeah, and uh, David Fincher wanted Gary Oldman to star in the film, but the character couldn't work it out. <laughs> Going yeah. back to Drexel. Ooh. <laughs> anyway. So, <laughs> let's get to the credits. Directed by David Fincher. Screenplay. Credited screenwriters. David Geiler, Walter Hill, and Larry Ferguson were the final credited screenwriters. Story by a credit to Vincent Ward. No one else credited. Um, <laughs> Hashtag David Twoey robs. Yeah. Uh, based on characters by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett, uh, produced by the Brandywine Boys, Gordon Carroll, David Geiler, and Walter Hill. Starring Sigourney Weaver, Charles S. Dutton, Charles Dance, and finally, Lance Henriksen. among many other um and a series of sweaty bald british men oh god yeah i think you sent me a text where you're like yeah it's like every person that starred in a ken loach movie (laughs) it's like yes this is like yeah every person who plays a disgruntled union member (laughs) yeah like the national institute of health is not working out for them (laughs) like (laughs) (laughs) yes um should be noted um during a uh, great score by Elliot Gothendall, Goldenthal, pardon me. Oh, yeah. Uh, edited by Terry Rawlings. And um, we should note during production, yeah, the Alex Thompson is the credited cinematographer. Alex Thompson, we may remember, uh, photographed legend hmm. and demolition man. Man, <laughs> the uh, two sides of cinema. Two sides. Two sides. The, the only two kinds of movies. Um, during production, the original cinematographer is Jordan Cronenweth, who mm-hmm. did the magical um, images of Blade Runner. Yeah, easily and, the uh, best part of that movie. David Fincher is a tried and true, devoted devotee to Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he developed Parkinson's disease, though, Ooh. and toward the top of production... And basically, they decided that there was a line producer who had lost his father to Parkinson's disease several years earlier and knew that with the schedule the way it was and the production the way it was going to be, that it could literally kill him. So they let Jordan Cronin with go. Oh, my goodness. To bring in um, Alex Thompson. Interesting 
um, side note there on Jordan Cronenweth, his son is cinematographer. Um, oh my gosh, give me <laughs> shit. Jeff, 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 Jeff Cronen, Jeff Cronenweth, yeah. and this is where he and David Fincher met. And Jeff Cronenweth went on to be the cinematographer on films like Social Network, uh, Fight Club, and many other. He's been one of David Fincher's key collaborators. Man, that's that's cool. So there is a little bit of a nice ending that story. Uh, we should also note that uh, Stan Winston, back in the mix, yeah. was approached but not available. So he re- he got brought in his two of his guys to um, Tom Woodruff Jr. and Alec Gillis to handle the alien effects. Um, Fincher wanted the alien to be more of a puma or a beast. Mm. Uh, rather than the slow moving kind of gloomy version that we saw in the previous two films. Um, stop motion animate, uh, stop motion animation was not used. They used, um, a rod puppet, a suit and some early CG. I have to say, I don't like the early CG. I don't think it looks, it does not look good. Yeah. Um, I preferred what I think I Madman was more, was better than, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't totally work. Um, it's it's a bummer. It's a bummer. What does work though is I think Fincher's device to use the um, Stanley Kubrick Shining style, um, sped up, um, um, Steadicam POV shots of the aliens spinning around the tunnels and stuff like oh, that. Oh yeah, phenomenal in the chase yeah. scenes towards the end. That rules. Movie. Yeah, it's huge. Great. Like... It's like yeah, like Sam Raimi and uh, you know his uh, Army of Darkness trilogy. Yeah. Like yeah, just like yeah, you're getting ch- you feel like you're getting chased by an alien, or you're it's watching really visceral yeah. and really strong stuff. Um, the basic storyline though is that um, Ripley crash lands onto the uh, new planet. What is the the oh Fiorina one sixty one or fury mm. uh a foundry of course it is a lava plant it is a lava factory the planet yeah um, this is the biggest lava factory we've ever covered for this for this podcast and it's also a maximum security correctional facility inhabited by only male in- inmates who are the worst of the worst this is like yeah. super max type prison the world's uh, most evil british people yes and they're all british except for charles dutton who's very yeah. very very good in the movie as dylan Oh, he's I great. Like I love him. him. Yeah. Um, the guys that they actually give like a little more face time to are pretty good, uniformly yeah. in the movie. They're um, like, yeah, fun character actors. And it, it in essence, the the pretty straightforward story that the face hugger from Aliens, an egg, has attached itself to the Sulaco, which was the spaceship that Ripley, Hicks, and Newt escaped in, and the damaged android Bishop escaped in. In, at the end of Aliens, the pod crash lands on this planet, and David Fincher makes his intentions very, very clear at the very <laughs> jump of this movie. Yeah. Um. By within five minutes, remember all those people we loved from Aliens and really got to adore, including the cute little girl and the brave heroic soldier. Yeah, they're dead. <laughs> Yeah, bye bye. You're dead. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. And 
like and you're just like whoa like you kind of even no matter how many times you see this movie just how cold it is how he presents it it's like you're like jesus like, it, it hits yeah. it still hits it's dark it's really yeah. it's really dark and i know a lot of people who hate this hate this movie strictly because of this yeah they look because jc did such a good job of establishing all of this in aliens and aliens is so beloved mm. that for david fincher to essentially gut it literally gut it yeah uh is a dark gesture um should be noted that James Cameron called it a straight up slap in the face. Was furious, man. And yeah, <laughs> so, I get it. I get I, it. I, if I was James Cameron, I get it. <laughs> I get it. It's very he uh, absolute slap in the face to him and the fans. But um, he eventually puts all of his blame on 20th Century Fox. And saying David Fincher got handed a big mess on a plate. Yes, he got handed and like yeah. I I mean I personally think David Fincher's fingerprints are all over that choice, but mm, that's I fair, also yeah. feel that James Cameron, rightfully as director to director, doesn't really want to talk shit about another major league director yeah, at that level. Even- he doesn't want to start a weird flame war with David Fincher. They're both they have better things to do, both they of all these have people. Better, they all have yeah. much bigger and better things to do. And they're both very aware of that. Um upon learning of Hicks demise, Michael Bean, because his photo is shown briefly, it says Hicks dead deceased. He asked for as much money as he got paid in aliens for the likeness use. And he got it. He was so pissed off. And he got that, paid. He got paid off for it. That uh, kind of rules. That does rule. They all feel it was just hateful and ugly. What, yeah, what, it's, what happened it's, with it? It's it's one of those things where like you see it, and I and I'll be real. I think I kind of like it's cool. I do think it is co- on on one level, but it is also like it does also like I can see. Yeah, you're pro- think, it's perfectly fair to be bummed out by it a bit. I think that if you put more emotional, like um. I don't like. We've kind of made that clear. I'm not the most sentimental, yeah, viewer. Uh, especially when it comes to like characters and story. Like I'm sentimental about like oh, I saw it then. That was fun or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like I'm not. Or like I watched it with my dad. That was fun. But like yeah. within the context, I'm, like I see them as characters. I see them as fictional. Like it doesn't <laughs> like. I'm not like hurt personally by it. No. But if you. But a lot of. Actually, I would say the majority of people actually are. Put the put like I mean look at all the adults who go to Universal Studios dressed as Harry Potter characters. People, That's true. a lot of people put up a lot of themselves. <laughs> yeah, or like or like the people that like got mad when like it looked like Chewbacca was gonna die in the last Star Wars, and then like they they end up they don't have the courage to like kill him off, so they bring him back and, later. And I know I'm like coming in more chilly. Like I'm thinking about it strictly in like this like filmic kind of like oh what a cool like bold move. Like I like yeah. the gest- I like the creative gesture more so than I like than I care about like oh man I'm so sad we don't get more adventures with Newt. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, it's like it's supposed to be like I don't know like you want to see the movies do something different every time, and this is an interesting juxtaposition to what we've witnessed before. Like it no, is yeah. Like- well, I think yeah. it just happened actually. It just happened with the response to Halloween Ends. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, because how it ends, they try something. I don't know if it totally works. I watched it, you know, immediately when it came out. We were so forward. Jen hated it. I appreciated the swing. Yeah. Some people, um, yeah. Some but people they like, like but they sideline uh, Michael Myers pretty heavily oh, in the new really? one. Really? And they try something completely different. And big, big move. Big yeah. Uh, yeah, that is like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a big, yeah, and I can see people being mad, yeah, because it's like, yeah, you go to Halloween for the Michael Myers, you know? You would think, yeah, and yeah. so um, by having, you know, killing off all of these beloved characters within seconds, and then stripping Ripley, literally shaving her head, stripping her down, so, and then uh, having her demand a um, autopsy of Newt to make sure there is no alien growing inside of so Newt. dark it and is like yeah. yeah they tear apart they tear apart the body of this little girl <laughs> it's crazy it is like it's kind of like you're at awe that this isn't like a major hollywood film like it's nuts. It, yeah it's so crazy that they like and going back to even that comment that doesn't seem like a blockbuster this doesn't seem like a blockbuster this no. is like a death march yeah <laughs> it is a funeral dirge it is yeah, yeah. it really is and Fincher's choice to like literally make the one color in the movie brown, like at all. <laughs> like, yeah, like like sick poo brown. And I mean, and, and not that you know Fincher. You follow his career. Fincher is not a fan of a deep color palette. He does no. not like bright color. He is not like he sees the world in a very muted way, mm-hmm. and um, it's benefited him in later pictures immensely you know and i think you know he's only gotten better as he's gone too oh with for this. sure but um this is, yeah it's a grim ugly movie it's ugly yeah. too and it's purposely ugly so discover there's no alien in uh, hicks or newt but ripley's alone on this prison planet with all these creeps these bald creeps uh, she's introduced to a uh, faculty doctor played by um, Charles Dance. Yeah, what they do with this character is interesting. And Charles Dance, like, it's interesting. He's, um, I guess he was on Game of Thrones, which is mm-hmm. kind of what most of them do. Uh, but us Mankheads know him as William Randolph Hearst in Mank. Yeah. He's excellent in that. <laughs> give, give me, take away that Tywin Lannister. Hearst for me, I say. <laughs> but he, I guess he... Um, Fincher initially offered the role to Richard E. Grant. Ooh. And he wanted to do a full With Null and I reunion with everyone else. <laughs> he wanted ah! the entire cast of With Null and I. <laughs> Man, if they had gotten like that, him and like Richard Griffiths somehow. Yeah. <laughs> David Fincher is such is a delightful lunatic when it comes uh, to this stuff. He's so that rules. That rules. Uh, that... Yeah. It's um so basically Ripley's stuck here. We find out Waylon Yutani wants to quarantine her and keep her. Like, mm. under lock and key. Mm-hmm. And everyone's kind of wondering, what's her deal? Meanwhile, though, whoopsie doopsie, guess what also emerges from the alien air, the her ship? That's right, a damn alien. So, okay, this is like an interesting, so um, I saw the assembly cut version mm-hmm. of this movie. And in um, so there's two things I think that like aren't in the theatrical cut that um, I think are kind of interesting um, and they kind of uh, add a little more 
uh, explanation for certain facts, access aspects of the film. So one thing is in in the um, theatrical cut, do they show Ripley on the beach, like them no. finding? So in the assembly cut, there's this scene, and I bet Ripley or Sigourney Weaver was fucking pissed that this was not in the movie because it's so nasty what she had to go through. <laughs> so they justify the reason why she shaves her head and why everyone has shaved his head on this planet is that there's, like, this weird species of lice that, like, exists on the planet. Mm-hmm. It's, like, giant ocean lice or something. And so when they find Ripley, they find Ripley. She's, like, away from, like, the, the ship is kind of, like, out at sea, uh, a little far out. And she, like, kind of, like, washes up on shore. And she is covered in, like, bugs. Oh, wow. It is an insane visual. She's, like, covered in crap and, like, bugs. And they're real bugs, too. They're not, like, you know, they're, like, moving around her and creeping and crawling. Uh, And so uh, that's nasty. And I bet Security Reaver was myth that that didn't make the theatrical cut because she had to be, like, covered in, like, bugs all day. And then then the other thing is is that in the the assembly cut, the way that the alien appears is they... um, they find a so in this world um when they find ripley there's like people with like oxen they're like using oxen it's such a weird like it's in the future but they're using oxen to like move things like big cows or whatever and so one of these big cows gets brought in by like it dies and so two of the uh you know british lads um you know, bring the cow in. They're gonna like cut it down and use it for meat or whatever. But then the alien comes out of the the cow, and that's oh. how it justifies why it's more bestial. That's better than um the thing dog ripoff. Yeah, that, that is oh. in the theatricals. Just it comes out of a dog. No, this one it comes out of a giant ox, which is kind of crazy. Oh, that's that's way better. That's way yeah. better because like yeah, because I was thinking the thing and. With the prison plan and all dudes, it's like it felt like very um, and I didn't read anything that like said that they were talking about the thing as an mm-hmm. influence. But it, to me, it feels like the thing. A lot of the movie, yes. except not as fun. It, oh, it's a it's a sad thing. It's like a, yeah, one it's of a the very, thing. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, uh, the alien gets out, starts taking down randos that we can't tell the difference between any of them. Yeah. Then like Ripley makes a connection with Charles Dance, who's the medical doctor. They even have sex, which is crazy. That um, is nuts. That is another thing in this movie that is so crazy. Like the immediately like Ripley is which I feel like has never happened before or after this. Like she's not she doesn't do that thing. No, it's not that kind of movie. It's not that yeah. kind of series. <laughs> yeah, Ridley, not yeah, that kind Ridley, of Ridley Scott has that like shower sex scene in Alien Covenant too, where the alien attacks the attacks the two the couple having sex in the shower in alien covenant it oh, always yeah. felt like that was a little out of like i'm all for a sex oh, universe yeah but i don't feel the alien universe is actually needs no <laughs> I, it's very I actually weird. think the emergence of the creature is sexual enough in a weird way oh well it's like designed by hr geiger yeah yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah you don't need to actually show people fucking all the metaphors perfectly yeah it's like yeah solid. both male and like all sides of it is in this alien yeah exactly yeah Yeah, the it's... maternal and the phallic are fused as one exact mundo hr <laughs> um... <laughs> shine on you crazy diamond we love yeah. you buddy <laughs> hr you're a goofball and we but love then... you so Charles Dance is like the one in one dude there that we got to know. The alien yeah. shows up and pummels him out it's of so nowhere. Cool. It's great. <laughs> it rules. We are on, baby, and it yeah. just gets scary. And the alien is attacking willy nilly. It's everywhere, and everyone is available to yeah. kill. 
So then Ripley's like, Jesus, what's going on? She finds the the chewed up body. What's the leftovers, if you will, <laughs> of Bishop Lance Henriksen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our boy. And talks to him. And he basically reveals how it got on there, where it is. And whoopsie doopsie. There's a queen growing inside of Ripley. Yeah. And then also Ooh. Bishop is like, please turn me off. Oh, yeah, you know, it's so sad. Yeah, it's so like, sad. I, I'm useless, baby. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't have value. <laughs> and it's a testament to Lance Henriksen because it's actually quite a good performance. Yeah. In this, in this one sequence. He's very he does he's so good as Bishop. Like mm-hmm. he's so like because Ian Holm was so nasty as the android in uh, Alien. Yes. And my favorite part of the entire series is the androids. Like oh. and how they use them. Like I mean, like I've I, I'll say it again, you know, in a month or two, but I'm such a fan of Michael Fassbender's David and Walter in the two new ones. Mm. And I think it's all good. <laughs> we should probably should probably cover Alien Resurrection at some point just to yeah, finish, I really to want the, to now to finish the job. Should, maybe in the, new, maybe in the news as well, Jean-Pierre Jeannot launching awesome bombs at Josh Whedon. <laughs> yeah, like just like that, and he made the movie. So he makes movies for nerds and morons. And I was like, yeah. preach, preach, yes, yeah, dude. Um, yeah. So Ripley knows she, she does not have a lot of time. They come up with this plan. And they also know Wayland Yutani sending this rescue thing for her because they are already aware that she has it in her and they're going to use her for science, basically, mm-hmm. to breed the alien. She's like, that's a shitty idea. That's a no, no, no. Yeah, that's don't a, do that. Bad no, no, no. I've seen I've seen this shit and this sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do love the fact that she is like. Unlike in many movies where it's like they kind of get used to the situation in sequels. Ripley's like, no, this sucks. These suck. There's no getting used to these aliens. This is bad news. Yeah. Nonstop. <laughs> like, there's no, like, yeah, there's no tropes to rely on. There's no, like, it's like, I guess they don't like fire, but, you know. But there's nothing we're going to learn from them. There's no. only death. Only death. Uh, yeah, you can't, yeah, you can't gain from these things. Yeah, there's nothing can be gained from an alien. They inv- launched this plan that they're basically going to first they try and blow up the alien. Then they're like, we're going to leave it, lead the alien to the lava factory. Yes. And launch it into some damn lava. Meanwhile, the uh, Wayland yutani rescue ship shows up. Guess who the fucking lead of it is? Ooh. Lance Henriksen. Yeah. As, perhaps. Never clear to me. Perhaps human uh, character known as Michael Bishop Wayland. Mm. And I always love the idea, and I think that they play with it a bit. I love the evil corporate overlords in this series, and I love the idea that they would have designed the androids in the in their own like <laughs> as themselves. Yeah, in and, their own likeness. Oh, 100%. In their own likeness. I think it's so like perfect yeah. so i buy him as human but i also buy him that he's just lying and he's an android i think see i don't team android i think he's an android i totally because like there, and there's a great moment too where like i think he's an android that doesn't even know he's an android 
Because he's it's like, so, I'm human. It's, it's, it's so much better than the replicant stuff in Blade Runner. I'm so oh. much more intrigued by it in the Alien series than the Blade Runner series. Oh, it's so much more. And they do, like, it's like, well, it's more with less. Like, you don't you don't need to, like, have all this this weird treatise on what it means to be human or whatever. It's Walter Hill. It's all Walter Hill in that, oh, yeah. in that vein. Walter Hill's just like, yeah, corporations suck. And they're, yeah. they're lying to you. <laughs> like, it's all you no, need, buddy. It's all you, you know, need, just, buddy. You need, you need that IQ. Like, you're good. It's like, come with us, Ripley. And I, he <laughs> does like, some great, like, guttural, like, talking and stuff like that. But they drag the alien in there. The alien kills everybody except for Ripley and um, Morse. Yeah, played by Danny Webb, who I, lo- I love. He's great in the movie. He's great in the movie, but there's something about like the fact that the only uh, two survivors at this point are Ripley and this just no-name in any other movie. This guy would be dead in like the first 15 also minutes. Like, yeah, a total scumbag. He's yeah. a stinker and asshole. He's like yeah. a total. He kind of has a change of heart towards the end, but that's out of like necessity, if anything. Yeah, survival. Yeah, um, exactly. So what they do though is they drop the queen. So the only they've killed the main alien that's been attacking all the prisoners, but they know the one is in Ripley. And they're trying to get her to come. She gets it with the help of Morse and with the help of eighty-five. Uh, the uh, oh, low IQ uh, guy who's working there, played by Ralph Brown. Oh, so there's uh, like this insane, and we'll post this blog. We'll post this blog. Yeah, yeah. It is his like... his, his diary of the making of this movie, which uh, <laughs> lives lives up to what you'd expect the making of this movie was. <laughs> um, antic and Lance Henriksen's great though in his final sequence as well. You wish he was in the movie more, but he also is like such a good special guest star kind of appearance at the end of this movie mm-hmm. it, and he gets the and lance hendrickson credit in the credits oh, yeah. which is it fun deserve it he earned it. so but uh ripley or uh, ripley ripley R- ripley ridley uh, ripley um <laughs> throws herself in a jesus christ pose into the lava pit as the chestburster emerges, uh, ending the series, ending the series. So in the uh, <laughs> assembly cut, they got rid of that part, which is so crazy to me. It, huh. You don't see the chestburster come out. It's such a bummer. It's like, that's such a good moment. So the reason was that I read mm. is that why they added it. And I think you're right. They needed to add it. Terminator 2 came out months before with the exact same ending. Oh my god. <laughs> and they were like, ah, oh, fuck, ah, oh, fuck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How do we have the anti Hero self-sacrifice ending. Mm-hmm. Like, into a lava pit, nonetheless. Yes. Both going and... into lava pits. <laughs> yeah, oh god, Chekhov's Lava Factory. Yeah, it's just, Chekhov's yeah. Chekhov's Lava Factory, indeed. Mm. And um, it is the same ending. It's the exact same ending. Oh, for me yeah. Too, except with none of the emotion. <laughs> Yeah, except that instead of Edward Furlong, it's fucking an evil British freak. Yeah, yeah and Lance Henriksen. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's air blown off. Doesn't work. Um, yeah. Um, oh, here's a fun little tidbit. So Morse's character, he ends up writing a book about everything he went through in like the world, and apparently in Alien Resurrection. Uh, call like Winona Ryder's character is like, oh I hate Wayland Utani because I read this book by Morse about the horrors oh. of Winona, which is like a weird that's so crazy. That's fun though. That's kind yeah. of fun. <laughs> I like that they keep yeah. the there's like still like a little uh like tissue between these two war- movies. Like they're keeping like like Morse's like ends up doing something in the can in the cannot canon of this realm. 
Yeah. And, and uh, Adam Naiman in his book, Mind Games, David Fincher, suggests that Ridley's, Ripley's pose is not so much of a Jesus Christ pose as it's designed to look like a middle finger to the Fox executives. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty good. That's which is far more David Fincher than the, uh, any, re- any religious. Um, I would say most of David Fincher's movies are actually deeply agnostic. Yeah, like, maybe even atheistic. Like maybe pretty... even atheistic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the film goes through post-production, utter nightmare, back and forth. There was no script. Fincher's doing battle all the way through. The you know Patrick saw the assembly cut, which is based upon David Fincher's editing room notes. If you bought the wonderful. Alien Anthology Blu-ray set, which many of us have loved and enjoyed over the years. A classic classic physical media set. You will notice that Ridley Scott, James Cameron, and Jean-Pierre Junot, all active participants in the special features across the Alien. Noticeably absent from the special features is David Fincher, who (laughs) hates... Alien 3 <laughs> hates everything involved in it, has disowned the film, Damn. and his review is, no one hated it more than me. To this day, no one hates it more than me. Oh, man. Yeah, I feel like he, mu- he must see it as, like, it's like the one movie from preventing him from having, like, a perfect catalog. There's yeah, and it's one movie he doesn't have control over, and I think it's very very telling. His next movie, Seven, he fought for complete control, and Seven is really like a statement of like of intent mm-hmm. of all of his all of his skills, all of his perversions, all of his interests are on screen there. Wow. And you know, and he's like a filmmaker too, who's very open about like filmmakers are perverts and need to. Yeah, let let their freak flag fly a bit, and that kind of that Hitchcock De Palma school, yeah, Cronenberg, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, he just feels Alien Three is a compromise. It does not live up to his standards at all. Mm-hmm. Alien Three has a forty-seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Open at number two at the box office. Memorial Day weekend. What a fun way to spend with the family. Memorial oh, Day yeah. weekend of nineteen ninety-two. Behind, <laughs> naturally, Lethal Weapon Three beat it. Um. <laughs> it's Rotten Tomato score is 47%. Mm. Uh, critical consensus is Alien 3 takes admirable risks with franchise mythology, but far too pay off in a thinly scripted sequel whose stylish visuals aren't enough to enliven a genuine lack of thrills. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think it's this time around. I, I enjoyed it. I think the final third is really exciting. To I, be honest. Yeah, I'm like a sucker for these movies, honestly. Like, I really love like... um. And I think, like, at the I core... like that this movie's redheaded stepchild status of the series, yeah, too. It's a it's a mean movie. And, like, it's funny because, like, it's a muddled movie. And you can see the muddledness. Like, Absolutely. you know, in, yeah, for example, like, you know, it's a movie set on a prison planet, but you can still see, like, you know, kind of like, like, uh, echoes of like the the vincent ward version of the script there's like this weird religious element yeah, yeah. you know um the ralph brown's character 85 was originally going to be like a, a character almost like gorman 
where he's mm-hmm. like a yuppie corporate guy that ends up like growing a spine at the end and kind of being courageous. Uh, and then, yeah, and at a certain point, like, I don't know if it was Walter Hill or whoever it was, but someone was like, "Yeah, let's turn this character into a weird uh, uh, person with like a like a low IQ or something." I don't know, but like, it's one of those things where like you can't really like you can still see the the other the original version that Ralph Brown intended to portray kind of in there like it's mm-hmm. not like like a total like done for i don't know there's like it has all these like weird problems and issues but in spite of that it's it's really fun to watch an alien you know pick off like weird british people i don't know yeah yeah and i think that there's a level of just kind of excitement and trying something different and it's, yeah. it's not as satisfactory in its um execution as alien or aliens but interesting nonetheless yeah um at the box office, it uh, budgeted. Its budget was uh, fifty to sixty million. Made one hundred fifty nine point eight. International made up for it, but they didn't feel it did very well in the United States. Mm. And I probably just do the fact that it's not a very fun time. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's not like a it's a, yeah. David Venture just doesn't. I mean, he can make uh you know blockbusters. He's done it before. I guess like. Seven was probably like well, seven was a big hit, right? Seven was a huge hit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he's he's made and like he's made a ton of huge hits. I mean, and he has a big, you know, if you look at a movie like Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, you look at a movie like The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, he can play on a huge scale. Yeah, it's just it's just not. I don't think he wants to play within the confines of someone else's pool. Mm-hmm. He wants his own sandbox. Yeah, he's not <laughs> a. He's not a like. He's not interested in your Star Warses or your you know uh, Batman's. And the times he's dabbled, I mean, he has. It has been suggested that he, um, you know, he's he's come near a few things. Mm-hmm. The most recent one is um, he uh, took. He really circled very very closely a World War Z sequel. Ooh, and um, but that was. Um, going to be in kind of a safe zone for him because of um he's going to be working with Brad Pitt and Brad Pitt's right. production company and so he, he have a lot of say even with the confines of a the, you know this kind of blockbuster type thing mm. um and I would I shit I would have loved to see it yeah I would be down to see David Venture's takes on like a zombie like a fast zombie apocalypse movie for sure yeah, yeah, and uh, you know he's bounced around, dabbled in things, but I think like he he has a good idea of what he does well and kind of the world that he's interested in and that mm-hmm. kind of thing, you know. And um, you know, quick list here: his favorite movies of all time: All the President's Men, Taxi Driver, Rear Window, Zelig, Paper Moon, Lawrence of Arabia, American Graffiti, The Graduate, Jaws, and Close Encounters of a Third Kind. Wow, interesting. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's like too optimistic for him, it feels like. He well, I think he appreciates craft. Mm. You know, and I think he and he, he doesn't have like a really like he's not Tarantino. He doesn't have this like depth of influence, like what he saw kind of as a kid in the seventies. The blockbusters are right. kinda what he does, but it's his taste and his personal ethics. And personal mm-hmm. ethos that I think separate him. He likes the darkness. He likes control. He likes nasty behavior. Yeah. <laughs> the darker side of humanity. And even his um, 
you know, even like his outlier movies, which I would argue Curious Case and um, Mank are kind of his outlier movies, mm-hmm. um, have a real like fatalistic sadness to them. Yeah, like yeah, like, Mank is not a Mank is not a happy man. Mank, and it does you know, and doesn't go per- perfect. Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which is a movie I a love 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 um is the weirdest 250 million dollar movie ever made yeah that is ins- all about accepting death mm-hmm. that is-, is literally what the movie is about it is crazy that someone let him make that this <laughs> ultimately beyond melancholy fable about aging and dying yeah and, yeah with the, with, and, like, with the backdrop being, you know, Katrina, basically. Yeah, and that <laughs> yeah. everything will flood, nothing lasts, and we're yeah. all going to die. Yeah, wow. And I remember Ebert's review of Benjamin Button, he hated it. And mm. because Ebert was in the in the middle of his illness mm-hmm. when it came out, and he hated the fact that it was so, like, there's nothing. Oof, yeah. That we live in this moment, we're in this moment, everything passes, everything's fleeting, and it's dust in the wind. wind. Yeah, I would, I could see if I was in that situation being like, this doesn't vibe with me. Yeah, you want more than that. That's why Ebert, like, with the next year gives Tree of Life, like, puts in his top ten movies of all time. Because he yeah. needs more. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's why, yeah, didn't he give, like, a like a three or four star review to, like, the last Malik film? Was it To the Wonder or whatever? Yeah. You love that movie, and too, I think yeah. he liked that more. And but he like hate, the things like Curious Case or Synecdoche, New York, mm. really troubles you know. And he he liked Synecdoche, New York, but it was troubling to him nonetheless. Oh, I would imagine so. Yeah, that movie is not for everyone. That is a rough. Yeah, I can see. Yeah, it's a tough one. But regardless, you know, Lance Henriksen does not embarrass himself at all in Alien Three. He does the job, and that's at the end of the day, the Lance Henriksen story. He does the job, and he does it well. He's a working actor. He's he's awesome. He's in so many good uh, genre movies. I mean, after just after this, after Alien Three, he's in you name it. Everything from Super Mario Brothers, Man's Best Friend, Hard Target, No Escape, Color of Night, Quick and the Dead, Scream Three. Down the line, and he's you know he spent a lot of time. He's in Alien vs Predator. Oh, yeah, he plays Wayland in that, too. Yeah. I remember that, yeah. And he's done, I mean, extensively the last 15 years or so, pretty much almost exclusively um, with the occasional bouncing back in uh, straight-to-video TV, mm-hmm. made-for-TV kind of films. But he always brings his gravity, his energy, his cool, like, unique quality. Mm-hmm. Teach you these things. I'm happy he's still around. I'm happy it's still all happening for him. Still working nonstop, it seems, <laughs> to this day. I, according to Wikipedia, he's got four movies that are in the po- in post-production right now. Wow. And he's going to be in four movies in 2022 doing different things. He's, he's, like a, he's an Eric Roberts type. He just he yeah, likes he's, to work. Uh, yeah. he's he, Eric Roberts, Danny Trejo. Put him in it. He's gonna bring it. He's gonna bring the goods, and I say, you know, let's put him in the Hall of Fame right now. So I, yeah, you know, he's in. Lance Henriksen, welcome to the Academy Academy Hall of Fame. Whew. 
Oh, we had uh, Lance Henriksen picks that we didn't cover on this episode. Um, I'm going to give a big shout out to No Escape, Ooh. which is uh, 1994, also released as Escape from Absalom or Absalom 2022, sci-fi action film directed by Martin Campbell, who did a lot mm-hmm. of the good Bond films, the recent ones, mm-hmm. and um, stars Ray Liotta as the lead. Kevin Dillon's in it and Ernie Hudson's in it. Uh, I haven't seen this one since it came out. I watched it in middle school with friends at a sleepover, and it rocked us, rocked our asses hard. We literally, like, we, yeah. loved, we loved it. I tracked it down on DVD after Ray Liotta's untimely passing, and uh, we're planning on putting it on for a movie night one of these nights because uh, those of us who have seen it really like this movie a lot, <laughs> or at least remember <laughs> liking this movie a lot. Uh, what is your Lance Hendrickson? pick you know it's an easy but it's a goodie I, you gotta give it to jim jarmusch's dead man oh, oh what a great yeah. movie oh a movie with like a bunch of fun guys too we're talking michael wincott robert mitchum john hurt crispin glover billy bob thornton has a small little part oh, in it man it's just a fun movie it's with a, a bunch of, a of weirdos hell of a yeah. movie good that pick. Bla- yeah it's a it's a it's a it's a treat and you know just it's yeah jim jarmusch is so um He's just one of those guys that always does his own fucking thing, he's and he's been able the, to the best to do it. Yeah, and he yeah, he's man. carved his little place in like his own little place in the world, and he's able to get his shit out there, and it fucking rolls. Much like Hong Sang Soo, I would yes! put him in that same category of a guy who just has lived in his realm, done his thing, and consist is, and you know, he's never not bored. Bad, not not made a bad movie. I like every yeah. one of his movies. Yeah, uh, even like coffee and cigarettes rolls. I yeah. love like the yeah. Like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan through and through of him. I think he's just an amazing filmmaker. I'm a huge Patterson fan. One of his more recent ones. Oh um, yeah, Patterson. Yep, yep. About a guy named so, Patterson living in Patterson. About a guy named Patterson living in Patterson. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, November first. You can but you can celebrate Lance Henriksen. Three hundred sixty-five days out of the year. Go for it. Watch one tonight. Let us know what you think about Near Dark or Pumpkinhead or hell, even uh, Alien 3. If you want to take that plunge. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, no, I'm going to be watching Alien Resurrection, I think, after we get off the, <laughs> after we yeah, get off the pod. I've been looking at it, too. Uh, next week, we return to the world of Scott Scott with Crimson Tide. Uh, Tony mm-hmm. Scott's 1995 uh, submarine thriller with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman, among many others. Oh, color me excited. I'm I'm stoked to watch this one. I keep looking. It looks like it's just available to rent uh, Uh through the major providers. Maybe I couldn't find it anywhere else um, freely, but uh, do it. Rent it up. And then the weekend after that, we're doing a return to the Visionary Alliance. We'll be talking bad boys and we'll be talking dangerous minds. Yes. Do you have thoughts on these movies or anything else? You know, if you got a thought about the world, something we haven't talked about on Center Our Way, mm-hmm. we're, we're happy to chat with you about it. <laughs> Check with us at the Academy Academy Podcast <laughs> at gmail.com or on Twitter at the Acad Acad. Um, super fun one. Went went way longer than I expected. Yeah, <laughs> so, this is a, it's a long boy, but it's a fun boy. There's a lot uh, to talk about. These movies are crazy. Yeah, we got into it. I, I was excited. Uh, we've wanted to talk Alien 3 in particular for a very long time, I think, as yeah. two, two of the. Uh, the few fans of it. I would tell Fincher, lighten up. 
Yeah. And then three's got some fun stuff in it. It's not it's perfect. Good. It's good. I, I admit, not, not your most perfect movie, but there's some fun stuff if I ever got a chance to meet Fincher. I would give it a B minus, which is like perfectly like it's good. It's a good better, movie. Better than lots of stuff. Better than oh, lots of stuff. Oh, for sure. For better sure. Better than Piranha 2. We'll give it that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, uh, man. Uh, later, folks. Have a wonderful yeah, Halloween. So I'm done. That was Patrick. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>